and welcome to episode 19 of Motorsport 101 here on iTunes and on Harrison101.com. I'm your friendly neighbourhood host, Andre Harrison, and in this ep- edition of the Motorsport 101 podcast, we've got another freeway for you on the show, but it's not the freeway you were probably expecting. I've been keeping this one under wraps for a little while now, but we'll talk about that in a bit. For those guys that have been asking me, the Kraken will be back soon, I promise. I know there's a lot of demand for the Kraken out there, and I know he's hilarious, but he's too busy edit- editing some AOR Pro Mazda and being silently quite depressive on Twitter. But in the meantime, he will be back for episode 20 very soon, I promise. He's been dying to get back on. It's just timing's been inconvenient more than anything else. He'll be back very, very soon. On another news-related note, real quick, when it comes to the podcast, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you to everybody who's been listening to the show since its inception all the way back in October. I just want to take the time out to say thank you because as you may or may not know this show was originally a university project um, created by me in the back of my bedroom and uh, it's now turned into quite a little baby of mine now and I've fallen in love with podcasting, God help me. Um, but um, essentially this was a project, it was graded, it, it's come back today, we scored 80% which is a first, the highest grade boundary available so I'm absolutely delighted. So a massive thank you to everybody that's, uh, that's sent their feedback along that's listened and subscribed on iTunes you guys are all fantastic and I love you all very very dearly um, especially um, like my co-host as well in the time I've, I've had the chance to work with on the show my web designer Stephanie Hunter if you're listening you're a sweetheart and I, and I love you to pieces thank you so much for putting up with me <laughs> over the last year or so and obviously thanks to all my co-hosts Mr. Scott Woodwiss who's been on us Sasha Wagonblast who's been with us as well Gino Crick and Vandenbroek of course and, of course, the one, the only, Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Hey, yeah, it's always great to be here, and I'm so glad you got a first. Thank you very much, my man. And, and, and you know, you, you've carried me through this adventure since its <laughs> exception. I think you've done, I think, something like 17 out of our 19 shows or something like that. I think we've done two bike lives that have doubled as episodes as well. I think you missed out on a couple of shows as well. So I think 15 out of 19 is quite yeah. the hit rate still. Um, <laughs> so uh, obviously, it's, 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 it's gonna, I've been working with Ryan for over two years, and he's an absolute pleasure to work with on everything from the finish line to YouTube work to just being the guy that's smarter than me on Twitter, which isn't hard, to be honest. <laughs> 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 but um, it, it, it definitely works out that way. And uh, yeah, so massive thanks to King, especially. He's, he's, he's my number two, so to speak. Uh, he's the barricade to my Schumacher um, <laughs> or maybe vice versa actually to, to be fair <laughs> but we also have a new uh, we have a new partner of us on this on this episode you may know him from Downforce Radio and various shows such as Pitboard Downforce Debrief and of course Bike Live he is my partner in crime he keeps Bike Live in check he is the moderator as me and Bex go to war pr- pretty much every single Friday night <laughs> at 8pm on Downforce it is the one the only Lewis Sutterby welcome to Motorsport 101 good sir Thank you. It's nice to be on this side of the fence for once. Uh, and yeah, congratulations on all the success. And I'm officially now riding on the coattails. <laughs> God bless you, Lewis. It's like you like you've been kissing up to me, and you've been on this show for a grand total of five minutes. I'm proud of you, man. <laughs> but yes, in case you didn't know, bike, uh, Lewis said to me is my bike life partner in crime. We host bike life every Friday night on Downforce Radio. It's we were the two originals before Bex joined us later in the year. It was just the two of us. We we limped on originally we, we, we kind of got along too well to be honest yeah the very first show we ever did was literally the moment we met <laughs> <That was laughs> exactly it. It, it was exactly that and we hit 
get it off immediately, which is just crazy. You didn't ever thought, like, I think um, our head honcho, Jake Sanson, uh, quite rightly pointed out, like, we suddenly like we've been doing shows for five years, and it was the first time we'd literally ever met each other. And it just worked. It just yeah, it wor- just, we just hit it off straight away. And, uh, yeah, when you throw the uh, the pipe bomb that is Rebecca James into it <laughs> later on. Um, and, yeah, when you pointed out earlier on that I'm the one that keeps them in check, all the listeners will be thinking, well, he doesn't really keep them in check at all, does he? <laughs> it just cr- kicks off every single week. He, he just sits on he just sits on the fence and enjoy and get, he grab, grab some popcorn while we yeah. stick our high heels out in each other people's necks during each episode of the show. But uh, yeah, oh. I've been mean, like Lewis, Lewis. I had to do your job once. I had to keep yeah. them in check once, and it was it was a pretty decent topic. So thank God nothing. Mm. Terrible happened, but it was hard enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was the one episode of the Scrutineer, which you can check out as well on Formula.nyc. We'll talk more about that later down the road. But uh, yeah, that was a fun show. And yeah, I don't, I don't think King is envious of your job, Lewis, uh, um, by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're here for some motorsport, apparently. So uh, yeah, apparently we'll talk about that now for the next hour or so. So breaking down what we'll be talking about in this edition of the show, which is now going to be bi-weekly, by the way. So that's definitely going to be a thing. People have been asking me about this all the way through. This is definitely going to keep going beyond the confines of a project because you guys love this show that much. So why the hell not? Um, so we were talking all about the news. The news that Kimi Raikkonen says the F1 cars of today are not dangerous enough. Is it clickbait or does he actually have a point? Um, we were talking about the teams basically taking out the executive order on refueling. And uh, the teams are all against it, except one, which is Ferrari, which will be interesting. We'll talk about that as well. Public um, fuel saving, the lift and coasting issue was came up quite often. A lot of pundits out there um, and Jake Humphrey slamming it publicly on their Twitter feeds and whatnot. We'll be talking about that. And we'll be talking about the initial results of the big GPDA um, Drivers Association survey, which was uh, which trended on social media over the last couple of weeks and while we pretended to care about it. We'll be talking about the initial results there because there's some interesting things that came up in the course of looking at the initial results um, as time goes on. We'll also be reviewing the Canadian Grand Prix as Lewis Hamilton took his 37th career victory. He's closing in on Vettel, goddammit. Um, so, I'm not happy about this. Um, but yeah, he's, he took his uh, fourth Canadian Grand Prix victory, his fourth win of the season, um, uh, his 44th pole position, and his 14th consecutive podium. Do you spot a trend here? Um, as well, we'll be talking about Nico Rosberg struggling in second. We'll be talking about the qualifying session from hell for Sebastian Vettel and Felipe Massa and just general um, pit lane carnage is a uh, everyone. Tr- we we didn't get a grid for this race until I think it was like deep, like 11 p.m. at night <laughs> for this Grand Prix because there were so many penalties to discuss. There were so many um, grid adjustments that needed to be made, uh, and we'll be talking about that. Raikkonen spin, Renault struggling. Are Lotus back on form, or is it just the power track? And Romain Grosjean taken back to 2012 in some Doctor Who style Time Lord memories as he hits the side of Will Stevens' car for no goddamn reason. We'll be talking about MotoGP in Italy as Jorge Lorenzo took his third consecutive win in the season and the season starting to look kind of ominous really. We'll be talking about Andre Iannone, who had a career-defining performance in second place and had just how lucky he was to be able to keep that second place. We'll be talking about the ongoing struggles of Marc Marquez and Moto2 and 3 as Rabat and uh, Miguel Oliveira made history by becoming the first Portuguese rider to ever win a Moto Grand Prix. We'll be talking a little bit about IndyCar as well, the duel in Detroit, which we missed on the last episode, and uh, as uh, Carlos Munoz got his first IndyCar win, as well as Sebastian Borde returning to the winner's circle 
in race two. And the Texas 600 as well as that, as it was Scott Dixon that took a, his, his, his second win of the season. And we'll be talking about uh, Connor Daly in the IndyCar races going up on YouTube, all that good stuff. And we might even dabble into a little bit of Le Mans as well, as uh, the Le Mans 24-hour endurance race kicks up on Saturday. So, all that and more on Motorsport 101 this week. Right then, to the news. So, first up, top of the bill, this, this, was, this was a big headlining point that came through on, uh, just a few hours ago, actually, on Motorsport.com, and it was talking about Kimi Raikkonen having a public interview, talking about whether the cars are dangerous enough or not um, in Formula 1, and it was very, very interesting um, to hear his thoughts on the situation. But, uh, I, don't, I haven't got the, the whole thing in front of me, um, but just to paraphrase, he feels like things could be spiced up a little bit for the driver to make things a little bit more dangerous, and you know nobody wants to get hurt, but, which is never the best way, I think, to go through an interview saying... I don't, I don't, nobody wants to get hurt, but like, it's just probably not the best thing out there. But it's, uh, King, what did you make of these comments um, regarding Raikkonen and saying that F1 needs to be maybe a little bit more dangerous and a little bit more spiced up? Because I know the headline was very clickbaity, wasn't it? I don't know. I, the, yes, the title was definitely clickbaity. Shocker. But when it comes to his words, there's some truth to it. Some just pure frustration about not being able to win a race unless, you know, you're in a Mercedes. Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot of reasons for him to say this. He doesn't speak often, but when he does, he means it. Yeah, it's very prominent, because you all know Kimmy is about as uh, entertaining as a piece of celery when it comes to most of his interviews. <laughs> but on, on on this occasion, he came out with quite the with quite the uh, in depth uh, quote on this, as he said with um to he said in an interview with John Lacey on Canal Plus. I've got the whole thing in front of me now. Thank you for thank you Google for that one. It says when I first arrived at F1, it was more exciting for everyone. It was really the top. It was a long time ago. You would have thought cars would have become faster, but with rule changes, they have tried to make them more slow. We must do something to make watching Formula One more exciting, to appreciate the speed and to make it a little more dangerous. It is part of the game. We don't wish to see anyone hurt, but it makes things a little more exciting. Um, with an option to exchange contract, blah, 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 says, it's, of course, it was very nice to win my championship in my first year with them. Yeah, general Ferrari PR nonsense. Right, so, essentially, he, he's saying that he feels like we they, Def one should be going out of to try and make things a little bit more entertaining. In other words, enhance the show. Yeah, I think what he's trying to say, from what I came from, is he wants the cars to be faster and more on the edge. What I find ironic about that is he wants the cars to be more dangerous back when he started, which was when Formula 1 cars had traction control, launch control, <laughs> uh, back in 2001, which kind of made the cars safer than they've ever been uh, to drive. So, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think King's right on this. It, it, there's a lot of frustration coming out in Kimi there. Mm. Um, and, you know, he did his best to make his Ferrari slightly more dangerous by pointing it in the wrong direction in Montreal, didn't he? So. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's very true. Uh, very I mean, this isn't a, this isn't a new thing. The no. FIA has always slowed cars down to make them safer. It goes back, I say, half a half a century to the 30s, where they they were planning to ban Mercedes and Audi from competing, but then the war happened, and then that conveniently ironed itself out, and they banned the entire formula of cars that raced before the war, and then. The GP2 that was before the war became what is now what is Formula One. Then 58. Then yeah, 58. They mandated that all the cars have to use commercial fuel and that all the cars have to be open wheel now. And then 
go to 1983, all cars have to have flat bottoms, and then it just goes on and on from there. It's it's not a new thing. Welcome to story time of Ryan King as you go for the entire history of Grand Prix <laughs> oh, <okay>. racing. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. AFIA is all, even in, even in my modern era of watching from like 2000 onwards, they've 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 gone out of their way to slow the cars down. I mean, just look at the lap times. I mean, Formula One in its modern peak, like, kind of peaks in terms of lap times around 2004. <laughs> then after that, they started to get slower with the you know, the, the no tire change rule. You know, then they banned refu- then they banned refueling, so cars were heavier at the start. We've we've now called what Mark Webber calls the showbiz tires, as you know, obviously Pirelli are having high tally the grading tires to try and spice up the show, as I say in inverted commas behind this behind this microphone, so to speak. So yeah, it's it's always been a thing about you know if I try to slow the cars down and you know having safety first, and that's always been a thing. This is nothing new. And yeah, Kimmy makes a good point. We we could always have a more exciting F1 by doing the little things here and here. But there's a good reason why these methods yeah. don't exist. And and because <laughs> uh, you you conveniently always run into the same regulatory dilemma. It's either you slow the cars down or you have to make the circuits safer. In, in, in bike racing, you don't get this because you can't make a motorcycle safer. No, like yeah, once. Once you're off the motorcycle, it's pretty much God's will what happens next, uh, essentially. So there's, there's only so much you can do um, when it comes to bike racing in the first place for safety. But you know, and it's funny as well. So a lot of the safety changes that we get to circuits are for the bikes. You know, people mm. think of the, the change to the parabolica at Monza, where they changed that from gravel to tarmac, which everyone was up in arms about. That was a that was a motorcycle racing change to try exactly. and make, make it safer for bikes and for motorcycle racers. So yeah, the two kind of meet in the middle in that respect. And yeah. The, Formula One, as you say, it hit its peak around 2004, where it's easy to forget we had groove tires back then, so you'd imagine yeah. how quick those cars would have been had they been slicks with Bridgestone and Michelin at war with each other. And, uh, yeah, I don't think we'll ever quite get to that to that era again, because, yeah, the FIA are always trying to slow the cars down. The engineers and the designers are always trying to claw that back again, and it's that, that continued struggle. So no matter what the FIA try and do, the cars will always gradually get quicker and quicker until they have to rein them in again. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's just the back and forth. It's the tug of war. It's the tug of war nature of Formula One. On one side, you've got technology and you've got engineers and development. On the other side, you've got the FIA safety and the show, so to speak. And you know, the show can cover a whole heap of different aspects, like we saw with the press release, the FIA released on the last show we talked about, and talking about how they're trying to, trying to bring back refueling. And you know, you're gonna have teams choose their tires. And speaking of which, it looks like that's set to be scrapped because uh, just before. The Canadian Grand Prix weekend, it was revealed that uh, the teams had pretty much taken out an executive order, all rallied together, and said, "Nope, we don't want to refuel them back." What did they make of this one, King? <laughs> oh, I, to me, like I was, I pretty much didn't care whether refueling was coming yeah, back or not. But as a political science student, this just blows my mind that, <laughs> the strat- that the strategy group could pass something, and the fact that because the teams have to do this, if if the vast majority of them just say, oh, we're just not going to do this, it just nullifies any vote that they had. That, <laughs> yeah, you have to bring back refueling. Nope, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just one of those things like, you know, no, like Full Senior Much just walked into that meeting and was like, you know, nope, we're not doing this. <laughs> what are you about to do? <laughs> uh, it's like, I am playing here. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's a bizarre situation because the strategy group obviously have these amazing proposals and it's just the six top teams essentially in a 
in a boardroom somewhere in a volcano, like some kind of really bad Bond villain plot coming together and coming up with these maniacal ideas as to how to improve F1. And yeah, that, which, which is what made that press release from two weeks ago, or three weeks ago now, just all the more shocking in that it's like, oh my god, they're trying to improve the show? <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like a fan service had, wrote, had written the press release. It's like. It's like every fan wants to see like an improve the show radar right there, and all of a sudden, oh, refueling. That that was a thing for like two weeks, <laughs> and that got scrapped just like that. Before you know it, it's gone. And yeah, I, I'm of king on this one uh, in the sense of I didn't really care whether refueling came back or not. Refueling is not going to improve the show. It's especially in the era of Pirelli, where you know tires fade fast, and the tires are a bigger influence than the fuel load, so to speak. If anything, it might make the tires a little bit more durable. But then with the three tyre choice, you'd have more aggressive tyres being picked anyway, so it kind of cancels it all out, really, more than anything else. So for me, it didn't feel like there was a proper plan in place. It was another unnecessary cost I felt like F1 didn't really need. Accelerator, accelerator. It's like the strategy group when it comes to most of these things. It's like ambitious but rubbish. It's like it's like Top Gear. Yeah. Form, form and when you when you refer to the fans and what the fans want, I don't think the fans know what they want. Formula no. One. They they want they want the engines thrown out and replaced with something louder. But that's going to lead to cost, which leads to an arms race, which means the slower teams that the fans love so much fall out of the sport. Which means we'll have possibly customer cars or three car teams, which the fans don't want. So. Yeah, they need to make their minds of what they want. And, you know, I think you said this on Twitter, didn't you, Dre? That Formula One fans, they don't seem to know what they want apart from they want it louder. Yeah, it's loud. We, we need more guys like Jack Villeneuve in Formula 1, clearly. <laughs> Just so we can hit the piss out of him on every, every race whenever he doesn't do so well. But yeah, I completely agree. The fans don't know what the hell they want. And I, I've had so many discussions about this on Twitter with, with fans of Ask a Fan, people just like saying, oh yeah, I think F1 should be like this. And I, I think they're, they're, we, should, we should ban Tilkadromes. And it's like, I keep hearing these more and more outrageous suggestions. Like, oh, you know, I had somebody who moaned with me on Twitter, like saying, that, oh, Raikkonen is the best talent since Senna. And we, we need, like, <laughs> We need to do like 2005 again where you can just, you can just set 20 quaddy laps in a row and it's like, could you tell the difference if a car was going all out as opposed to fuel saving? <laughs> could you tell the difference if it wasn't for commentary in a couple of lap times? It's like, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a placebo. It, it, it's something to make fans feel better about themselves when while watching it doesn't make any difference in my humble opinion. And, to, and for me... It's 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 a placebo, and you don't need it. And for me, it just feels like we don't know what the hell we want besides maybe more engine noise. That's that's, that's maybe the one thing <laughs> that universally all fans can agree on. That sounds a little bit rubbish, and even that I think is yeah, overrated. And Kidney's the best talent since Seda. Moment to laugh at that, please. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> like, I took the pick. It was it was just some random guy on Twitter that was like, "Oh, Dre's like, yeah, Raikkonen's the best since Senna. Look at this in 2005. Go watch IndyCar instead. F1's clearly too smart for you." And I'm like. Well, shit. <laughs> you, you, sure I mean, told, you sure told me, fella. <laughs> yeah, I mean, too smart for Kimmy, F- too. <laughs> <laughs> oh I mean, F1 has 400 million fans. That means there's 400 different ways people think Formula 1 should be run. <laughs> the, the, the bigger problem here is that Formula 1 needs a leader. There, there should be a situation where the FIA puts out a press release about what Formula 1 is going to be in two years' time, and then two weeks later... One item on that press release is not going to happen. Yeah, it's like, that's just F1 in a nutshell. Like, Bill gets passed, fans 
largely seemed quite positive on the idea of bringing back refueling. There was a couple of people that was like, I think, for me, the reaction was largely positive to the whole press release, the whole idea of refueling, and the idea of, you know, teams being able to choose their entire compounds, and it was like, hmm, intriguing. Tell me more. And next thing you know, one of them gets scrapped like three weeks later. So it's like, <laughs> that is F1 in a nutshell. And I've been saying this on the internet since since the dawn of time, effectively. Um, since the yeah, days when... I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Besides the health and safety brigade, that F1 has been on Twitter, it seems largely positive, but it, it seems like, imagine if FIFA were like, we're going to bring in goal line technology, and then two weeks later, goal line technology is not going to happen. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that will, like, FIFA will be mocked some, for something like that. F1 gets away with it, quite frankly, on a large scale, as to how badly it's run, quite frankly. I know people will take a look at more obvious leagues like FIFA, which, where do we even get started on that, on that shit right there? Um, at least they get shit done. At least, they yeah. get, at least FIFA does actually get some shit done. F, at F1 least is, FIFA, don't, FIFA don't have to put it with teams threatening to walk away either. I mean, I know there's been the, the, off, the, the off bit of talk that perhaps the English FA may walk out and or UEFA may drop out of the World Cup, but that is an empty threat. Yeah. Uh, where the Formula 1 teams, like Ferrari say we're going, the teams and, and Formula 1 as a whole listens to Ferrari and knows that ideally it needs them as much as they need Formula 1 exactly. and they end up singing to their tune exactly so you know F1 essentially is that favourite dog picture of yours on Facebook that keeps chasing after its own tail and it's really cute for about 20 seconds in the videos that's really kind of stupid essentially so <laughs> and, that, and that's what it feels like right now it feels like People have got their priorities in the wrong order. People have said, oh, the, oh, the show's going to be better, and, and you know, the show's going to be better, you know, you've got to have a more exciting product. So there's more fundamental problems in F1 than the show, because for me, the V6 era has actually been surprisingly good so far, especially when you consider that there's one dominant team in there which should be killing everything in terms of excitement. Like, we've actually, 2014 was actually a pretty darn good season, all, all, all things considered and in terms of race quality we had three amazing races in canada bahrain and hungary i think another couple that were really good in germany and silverstone i think were quite good too well, it's, it's interesting isn't it because it's, it's which the fans want do they want a close championship or do they want exciting races because 2011 had so many good races but vettel won the championship at a canter yeah exactly. uh, you look at races like 2010 where we have five going for the championship almost to the penultimate race when jensen was out of contention but there weren't many classic races at no. all in 2010 it was dire and you go back to the early 2000s where everyone loved watching Schumacher and Hacken and go head to head but how many classic races did you see in that era there weren't many of them yeah exactly it's one of those things where people will look at those look at that era with nostalgia and they'll look at it with rose tinted spectacles quite frankly because it was 2004 because the engine sounded nicer and the cars were faster and Schumacher was Schumacher and you know, you, you you had guys you can take the piss out of like Villeneuve, and you had you you had faster cars, arguably better looking cars, and all that. And people obviously will look at the look at that era quite fondly. Yeah, think back to 2002, what mm. the part of that golden era where Michael Schumacher won the championship by the end of July, he won it at Magny Corps, and then there was <laughs> a there was a desperate sort of clamour for rule changes, and we ended up with the one shot qualifying coming in. We ended up with part Fermi rules changing, which haven't changed since. Um, and there was a massive overhaul of the rules, and you know it's it was a re it was a panic reaction to a team's dominance. And you know mm. if, if Lewis Hamilton runs away with the second half of this season as Vettel did two years ago, we'll have that same sort of clamour again that things need to change. 
Yeah, in other words, thank God Nico Rosberg has a functional car. Otherwise, <laughs> we, we'd, we'd all be doomed right about now. Because the only reason that it's not Hamilton at a canter is because Rosberg's always finishing second. And his Mercedes is reliable. Thank God for that. <laughs> it's not like a Tom Sykes. Otherwise, he'd be in some, some real trouble right about now. Yeah, it's like, only thank, God, <laughs> thank God Nico Rosberg's German, not Australian. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of looking at it, yeah. Yeah, well, in other words, thank God Valentino Rossi is still a thing. Otherwise, <laughs> and we'll get onto MotoGP later. And it's kind of come what we were saying about, um, in the running order, I was talking about how the, the idea of, you know, the, a lot of audio messages during the show, well, um, or during the show, during the race, whatever. We don't even look at it, really. In the sense of, you know, I think Jake Humphrey was very vocal about this on Twitter and has been before about, you know, he doesn't like when teams put on the radio, like, oh, you know, you've got to lift and coast and you've got to save fuel and you've got to manage fuel. And we had a lot of blow up regarding this. David Coulthard wrote a very um, passionate um, blog against this so for, B- for BBC F1 after the Grand Prix. We had Fernando Alonso um, <clears throat> talking about how he didn't want to save fuel and didn't want to save tyres because he thought, screw it, we're not going to finish the race anyway, so what's the point? In other words... But you know what? That comes back to the fans not knowing what they want because they mm. want more access, they want to hear from the drivers, but when we hear from them, we complain that they're bitching and moaning on the radio. Exactly! Uh, the, the one that stands out like a, like a sore thumb for me to that one, was it, was it last year, the Vettel-Alonso battle at Silverstone? Oh, God. Where everyone was complaining afterwards that the two drivers were complaining about track limits on the radio. It's like, well, if you want to hear from the driver on the radio, that's what you're going to hear, I'm afraid. Yeah, like... I mean, uh, imagine if we had team radio at, like, other times in Formula 1 history that people would kind of think were so much better, like the 1980s, the first turbo era, where they could never actually run at full pace, because if they did, their engines would blow up. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's always been a game of management, and you know, suddenly made a, a beautiful point there about because like, I was in the middle of that Silverstone 2014 battle, and I was so frustrated not at the fact that there was radio issues, but the fact that he couldn't pass the bloody Ferrari or many of those because Renault was still struggling with the power units for so long, and it was a brilliant battle, one of the best of the season. Um, it was runner-up on Sky's awards for best individual fighters of the year behind surprise surprise Lewis and Nico in Bahrain I know shocker um, <laughs> but, but but essentially yeah I mean it was, if you find out everyone was complaining about the radio calls because they were talking about track limits which is a key part of Formula 1 these days, especially now in, in an era where the FIA are coming down on on um, track limits quite hard these days and yeah, that was that. That summed it up in a nutshell. Essentially, yeah, we uh, we we want to hear more, and you, and you know, we take this tech for granted that we can hear what the drivers are saying in the middle of a Grand Prix, which has been a thing since I think 2006. I want to say something like that, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit beforehand, but it's been a thing for at least ten years now. Where yeah, because if, if we didn't hear the lifted course messages on the radio, would anybody really be complaining about it? Exactly. Ignorance is bliss in this yeah. scenario. Like the f- We are blessed and we are also cursed at the same time with this tech because because we we don't because we now know more about the sport than ever before because the sport is more accessible than it's ever been in this era of social media and advancing advancing technology even more so now because the engine is so quiet you can actually hear what these drivers are saying on the radio most of the time as well. Um so yeah, we like we hear these radio messages and we hear like, oh yeah, lifting coast, and then we complain that the, the guys aren't pushing, and it just proves, like I said, it's a placebo. Like we we want to feel like 
these guys are pushing all the time. And uh, my argument to that has always been: if you didn't hear the messages, would you be? Would you? Would you know the difference? And I, I guarantee, ninety-nine percent of viewers would not be able to tell the difference if it wasn't for commentary and team radio and David Croft's awful commentary, uh, essentially just in, in, in moaning about these things that we wouldn't know the difference. And yeah, it's 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 nice, but for me, like. For me, King, I don't feel. For me, it just feels like people are just bitching about bitching. <laughs> it's it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it really sounds like that because it it seems like there are so many things to pick at if you don't like the current formula. If your driver is not winning, if your team's not winning, it's just an easy go-to complaint. Exactly. It's like, oh well, we don't we, we don't like the sport because my boy's not winning, and uh, that was pretty much me in 2014, to be honest. But still, <laughs> it's, besides, it's besides the point. Okay, <laughs> I was okay with Ricardo, honest. Um, but, but yeah, essentially, that's exactly what it is. It's just you know, if you if your if your boy isn't winning, because you know a lot of F1 fans have their favourites. We all do. You know, you know, Lewis is a diehard Jensen Button fan. God bless him. Somebody has to be uh, during, during, like, during this during this difficult time for McLaren. Yes. We'll be talking about that more in a bit. Um, you know, Mr. King over here is a is a devout Nico Rosberg fan. God, I, I don't know how you do it, King. To be honest, <laughs> it's not as a str- It's not as hard as a struggle as being a button fan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the 2007-8 Honda days really prepared me nicely for 2015. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. And then there's me, the Sebastian Valfan, who's been riding on the coattails of success for about seven or eight years now until 2014. Was it was equivalent to being hit in the back of the head with Triple H's sledgehammer, quite frankly. <laughs> being wielded by some plucky Australian fucker who can't stop smiling. <laughs> Who I like, but I hate his bandwagon, as we've talked about before many on this show. Um, cause, yes. <laughs> what's that quote again, King? <laughs> oh my god, okay, I'll say it this time. <laughs> Good man. One more time? It's like, it's like I love Daniel Ricardo, but I hate how everyone sucks his dick. <laughs> <laughs> it never gets old, it never gets old, I love it. <laughs> and it's so true, it's alarming, like, everyone was just kissing his ass during that Top Gear episode, and it made me sick. Uh, <laughs> The same, the same guy who's the last couple of races has been beaten by Danny Kvyat. That guy. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, it's looking quite so rosy for Mr. Ricardo, and he's losing out to the 21-year-old. The <laughs> 21-year-old who's been threatened, whose yeah. job has been threatened multiple times. Already. Like he's, like, like he's not even done half a season, and, and Marco can't wait to get rid of him. <laughs> but that's a discussion for another day. But yeah, last bit of news before we move on to Canada itself, and we'll be talking about that in general. King, tell us more about the GPDA initial results that came out the other day. Well, they haven't released any specifics about how fans voted, but mm. they released how many fans voted and how they voted, well, time-wise. Apparently, over 200,000 people responded to the survey wow. from 194 countries, which I'm pretty sure is the exact amount of FAs in FIFA, which is strange. Wow. And the average time of each respondent to complete the survey was 25 minutes. 25 minutes to fill in a fan <laughs> survey. That's a bit loose. What, 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 I, I never actually completed this survey because I just felt like it was a complete waste of time and the fans have no influence and shouldn't have any, so I thought, fuck it, why am I doing this? Basically. Um, did you do it, King? Uh, no. Did you, Lewis? 
Uh, no, I didn't. I'll tell you what, though. We were both on the same Skype call, weren't we, with our Bike Life producer, Lester Forbes, as he did it. Let me tell you, it took a lot longer than 25 minutes. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> like Lester, Lester was, was like, we we finished the show at about 10-ish, roughly, because we run over a little bit now and again. And it got to near midnight, and Lester was only about halfway through. Like, yeah. it, it wouldn't be surrising me if Lester's, Lester was the reason why the average probably got skewed by about five minutes. <laughs> it took about four hours to compete that damn thing. I, 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 do, I did hear a lot of people telling me they couldn't handle the service couldn't handle it. There was a lot of loading time problems. There was a lot of... The fact, the fact, the fact that the survey itself was very long in the first place, quite frankly. But yeah, we, we haven't had any in-depth results yet, but 25 minutes to compete a survey. Me sitting down for half an hour clicking boxes and maybe typing in the occasional additional comment seems like seems a bit ridiculous it's, it's like it took me longer to, it took me shorter to go through my job seekers allowance form the, the, like two days ago than, than going through what seemingly what that survey sounded like but yeah 200,000 people is a pretty crazy number especially from yeah. when you raise it from 190 countries like I don't know there's actually there the I looked it up. I was like, there was the number seemed strange to me, and I, I had a hunch. And I went to see how many members there were in the United Nations. There were there were survey replies from 194 countries. Right. There are 193 full members of the United Nations plus one observer country, Vatican City. <laughs> it is the exact membership of the United Nations. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the maybe the Pope is an F one fan. <laughs> oh my god! Look, the, like the Vatican City's got a population of like literally some people. A hundred and ninety. So demonstrate. A hundred and ninety four out of a hundred and ninety four countries took a part in this survey in some variety. Yes. May God bless the American Samoa for voting <laughs> an F one. <laughs> uh, I mean. I'm not going to get into like how small Vatican City is, but back to the survey. I didn't, I didn't submit a survey, but I just ran through it to just look at the questions. And the, I would say there's some agenda hunting with this survey to begin with. Go on. I mean, the way the questions were worded were basically they kind of wanted the, they wanted the 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 answers to be kind of no brainers. Like, of course the fans want more access. Like, no shit. <laughs> like, yeah, can I, can, I, can, I, can I go into the Ferrari garage and rub shoulders with Kimi Raikkonen, please? Like, that would be, be perfect for F1. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like with, with my football team. You feel, feel sorry for me for supporting Jensen Button. Feel sorry for me supporting Hull City Football Club as well, who just got relegated from the Premier League. They've been going through this name change process lately, changing to Hull Tigers, and they had a survey of the fans. And the survey was, do you want a name change? Yes, with the owners to stay at the club, or no, the owners go away and sell up. It's like, hmm, what should we have? Change our name or the club goes into oblivion. Yeah, let me think about that. <laughs> so in other words, your owners were holding whole city's own fans by gunpoint. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like a survey where there is really only one option. Yeah, it's like it's like having a survey saying like, who is your favourite Mercedes driver? Is it Lewis Hamilton or is it someone not German? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I wonder what the answer could be. <laughs> um, so essentially, yeah, like I went for option C, Valtteri Bottas. But, uh, but basically, it's, yeah, the, the crazy, crazy um, situation. Yeah, a lot of a lot of turnout. I'm surprised it was as much as 200k. Um, yeah, much props to them in that regard. So. Yeah, let's move on, shall we? Let's talk about the Canadian Grand Prix. So, 
Canada. Uh, home to maple syrup, Canadian bacon, James Hinchcliffe, and Lewis Hamilton dominating, pretty much. Is, is, well, okay. Maybe dominant is a strong word in this one, because he only won by about 1.5 seconds, which, in any other circumstance, you'd think, ooh, that's quite a close win in the end. But... Let's be honest with each other in this one, King. As, as the Rosberg fan, Rosberg never posed a threat, really, did he? No, I mean, he yo-yoed back and forth further and closer away to Hamilton, but he he could never really actually mount an attack, which was frustrating. Yeah, it's like we, we were waiting for the battle that never came. Was like, For those guys that don't know me, because um, King missed out on this, actually, because he was at the gym, I think, or something, and we did a Dre and Friends watch the Canadian Grand Prix. It was me and a few friends of the show um, watching them via Google Hangout and then talking through the race together, and uh, it was it was me, it was Mullen, it was Kraken, it was Marcus, and a couple of other guys as well that we know. And, yeah, we came up with the same thing. Like, we, we tried to get excited every time Rosberg was just getting into DRS range, but it was off a bat marker, so it didn't really count, because Hamilton was getting DRS too. <laughs> so it was just like, ah, shit. It's back to 1.3 again. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> that was the story of the race. It was Hamilton just in complete control from the start, and Rosberg just could not mount an attack. We just waited for an attack that never came. So, of course, Sky F1 give Hamilton a 9.5 rating in their race review scores. I'm like... 9.5? What, because the other guy couldn't put on an attack? <laughs> okay, fine. We'll go with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, what did, what did he make of the race? I, mean, I thought it was like slightly above average, but nothing too special, really. Yeah, it wasn't great. I mean, it was uh, Rosberg was always close enough to keep you interested and keep mm. you dreaming that a race was on, but Hamilton always just seemed to have an arm's length and respond when he needed to. I think Rosberg got it down to about a second with a few laps to go, and then next time he looked at the timing screen, it was up to three-odd seconds. So, yeah, Hamilton had it under control. It was similar to races that we saw. I think Melbourne was one of those where yeah, they were about two seconds apart for most of the race, but Hamilton never really came under threat and and yeah it was another race as it often seems to be this year with the Mercedes guys where qualifying decides the race whoever's on pole has such an advantage and it's one of the things I dislike about this inter-team battle is that mm. the guy in front gets the first pick on strategy yeah. so of course he's going to pit first before his teammate which means he gets the fresher tyres before his teammate and he's never going to get jumped um, and that was the case on Sunday Hamilton always had it in the back yeah, essentially. And yeah, absolutely right. I mean, it's not a bad strategy for Merckx to have that first... Ever as the lead car gets the optimum call, it's, it makes perfect sense. It's just yeah. annoying as a fan to watch. And, you know, you know, Rosberg, yeah. and, Rosberg and Hamilton are so evenly matched in terms Unless of... Unless you go the old Yamaha MotoGP route, where Rossi and Lorenzo were teammates, and they had a wall down the middle of the garage. Yeah. Unless you literally split your team into two, <laughs> then, you're, you're, then you're never going to get that kind of inter-team battle. Of course, the Merckx aren't going to do that, because they're... they're their first priority is get the one two, which yeah. is the reason why they had those issues in China, where Rosberg was complaining about the tire wear, and he did have a legitimate point. It was Hamilton was going so slow, it brought Vettel into play when he probably didn't deserve to be there, quite frankly. And you know, Rosberg, given the nature of China, the tires and Hamilton's pace, couldn't realistically mount an attack. And right behind him was Sebastian Vettel the whole time. Like, well, what do we do about him back there? <laughs> Um, yeah, like Vettel's pace was never that great in China, but because of the fact that Hamilton was going so slow and looking after number one, 
it kind of gave Ferrari the illusion that they were competitive and brought them into play when Vettel didn't really need to be there. So, so yes, yeah, so, so that kind of scenario again, and like you said, Australia, it was, it was a carbon copy of Australia. It was just Hamilton in the lead, in control, and Rosberg was never close enough to mount the threat. It was like a cock tease. It's, it's, it's like whenever you watch a CinemaSins video and you hear the sin of, well, this scene does not contain a lap dance. And it's just like, <laughs> ding, and it's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's like every time it happens, it's like... You 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 think maybe just maybe Rosberg might get close enough to an attack and then no it just doesn't happen in the end and that's what made it disappointing. What made it doubly disappointing is that there wasn't really a fight between anyone else on track either because Raikkonen had a dog's dinner of a race. Um, he was kind of close during that first stint on the super softs. He changed tires and then spun it two laps after he changed tires and on, on the primes and then changed onto the options again for some reason. Um, so he did, he, did, he did a two-stopper, which is never going to work around here. And he gave Bottas track position, and he gave him too big a head start. And next thing you know, Williams get their first podium of the season, which I must admit was a nice, refreshing change, given that before this race, 17 of the 18 podium spots had been a combination of Hamilton, Rosberg, or Vettel in some variety. So nice to see the other Finn get featured this time, eh, King? Yeah, I mean, uh, I love Bottas, and... I mean, I'm happy you got the podium. Mm. It, out of all the races for it to kill my GP predictor, though, this is my <laughs> home race. This is my home race. And in the Dre TV predictor lead, who had the highest score this weekend? It was Lewis goddamn Sotheby. <laughs> yeah, don't ask me how that happened, because I haven't changed my prediction since at least Bahrain. Uh, wow. so, uh, it you was, it was son one of, of the, a bitch. I know, <laughs> it was blind luck. It was, it was one of those where, remember back in 2013, Dre obviously will, when Vettel won sort of like nine or ten straight second nine, half yeah. of the season. And I hadn't changed my predictions from about, so Hungary Spa onwards. Mm. So because I had Vettel to win every race, I just kept getting the right week after week. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think my predictions were from back in sort of Bahrain, where I thought on those long straights Bottas would get on the podium. So I had that as the one, two, three. Um, but a win's a win, so I'll, I'll happily take it. Yeah, I'm just looking at the race by I'm just looking at the race by race standing. Sotheby had 29 points more than any other guy, and he, I think he was the only guy in the, in the, on the top half of the table to accurately get the podium spot on and hence get the gets hence get the 30 bonus points to get in the podium because yeah. he had Hamilton, Rosberg, Bottas and then the Ferraris 4 and 5 which actually made a lot of sense he, he, he'd have scored even more if he got the other two the right way around yeah. Uh, yeah, like, like, we had the same like prediction percentage I had a great weekend besides not getting the podium <laughs> and I ended up finishing second <laughs> like, if he if, so say for Sotheby right now for free if he swapped his Ferraris around he'd have gotten the 60 point bonus for 6 correct finishes because he also got Grosjean in 10th uh, for, for 10 points. And then he had the Ferraris the wrong way around with five each. And he also had, he was also one out on Kvyat and one out on Felipe Massa as well because Ricardo didn't get in the points this weekend. So. Yeah, I'm having, I'm having a good year with predictions in Formula 1. Because on the uh, Badge GP game, I was number one in the world for Barcelona where we were predicting that. Yeah. It seems I'm an awful lot better at predicting cars than I'm at bikes for anyone who listens yeah. on Friday nights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. that. Bottom of the bottom of the bike life predictor league, 
eleventh in 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 the uh, JTV predictor league. He's up twenty two spots from the last race. Yeah, He's when now you say bottom of the Bike Live League, it's not exactly close either. No, <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> I sold my soul for ninety nine, and it worked out beautifully. What can <laughs> I say? Um, but yeah, as you can see, just as, just guys who are interested in the JTV League, um, I might put a link to it on the uh, podcast entry um, podcast uh, entry entry sheet beneath us. But yeah, basically, I'm in fourth right now overall with four seventy five. I'm trying to retain my title from last season. I was 20th in, on the whole planet last season, which I was very proud of for that one. I was like, where's my trophy for getting in the top 20? Um, but yeah, I'm fourth at the moment, 11 points on the top. Aaron Bell leading with his, his Red Bull Racing Renault team. I think, I think he's leading because he got like 189 one race or something, and he's, and he's been carrying on to that lead ever since, which is really friggin' annoying. But race by yeah. race, Sodomy was top scorer, and King was second with 76. Um, so yeah, he said he had a really, really good race, the Silver Curtain team there. Mm. And yeah, he was only out on Vettel getting the podium for two points, but he had everything else. He had, he had Hulkenberg spot on in eighth. He had Massa spot on in sixth. And he had Raikkonen spot on in fourth as well. So 10, 10, 10, 10, and 10 as well. But if he was just one more guy, he got in the right spot. He'd had a 60-point bonus for six correct predictors. But um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, talking about the rest of the race weekend, really, I mean, we didn't have a battle at the front, really, and that was kind of a bummer, really, but the most of the race was watching the Williams of Felipe Massa and the Ferrari of Sebastian Vettel after they had a dreadful qualifying session. Massa, I think, had some kind of engine problem, and Vettel um, had an MGU failure, and uh, was both, both of them got knocked out in Q1, uh, so to speak, and then Vettel was given a five-place group penalty um, for... Passing a car under a red flag, you stupid barnacle head. What were you doing, Sebastian? Um, so to speak. Um, but yeah, he was feminist when he had to start 18th on the grid. I think Massa started from P15. Turns out Massa got up to sixth place. Sebastian Vettel up into fifth. I think for a phenomenal performance from Sebastian there, King. <laughs> Yeah, great. I mean, that was the highlight of my weekend, watching the onboard cams from, from Vettel and Massa, because it was just amazing how they were just cutting up through the field. Yeah, it was like, it was like just bosh, there goes science. Bosh, there's Verstappen. Bosh, there's Maldonado. It was just one after the other from Vettel, lap after lap, and Alonso. But Alonso put up quite a fight, bless him. Like, <laughs> like, it's like, wait, wait, Alonso, where are you parking that car of yours, son? <laughs> just reminding us all he's still here. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I'm still here. Like, this is the most airtime I'll get all season. <laughs> Un- unless my car's being wheeled back into the pit lane, which ironically happened about 30 laps later, uh, so to speak. But yeah, and I uh, say, the best part of, of the race for me was the Massa Ericsson fight early on there, and yeah. uh, Massa being on the the not so um, it wasn't the prime tire I think or other way around. I see Ericsson was on, was on the softer tire, and Ericsson I call him the Great Wall of Ericsson during the race because he was so <laughs> difficult to pass this weekend. Props to Ericsson for some great defensive driving, and it was a phenomenal pass from Massa through turns one and two. Like almost like there was contact, there was a little bit of side pod running rubbing there. Great awareness from both guys to avoid a disastrous accident for the second straight year for Felipe, at least. But it's funny you mention that, because mm. Ben Edwards on the BBC F1 commentary renamed that corner. He renamed it from Turn 1 to Turn 1, where, of course, Felipe Massa had that accident last year. He mentioned it about four consecutive laps. <laughs> Felipe Massa was coming up behind another car, and, uh, yeah, the Felipe fraternity on Twitter were getting more than a little annoyed at it. Oh yeah, it's like it's, it's it's not been a good season for commentators and Felipe. We've, we've yeah. had that on one end, and we've had we've had David Croft calling Naz a Fred for some yeah. stupid fucking reason. And it, and it didn't help from from Felipe's point of view. It didn't help that Max Verstappen had reminded him of it on the Thursday too. 
<laughs> oh god, it's like, what, why, Max? Why? We're gonna let this one go. But no, you had to bring it up again, didn't you? Um, but yeah, that was that was a thing. And yeah, props to Felipe again. Gr- great comeback. I mean, let's be real. Williams, I think a top six is probably a fair result given where Williams have been all season long. That's about right for Williams and. Vettel again in, in fifth place, second fifth place of the year was fifth in Bahrain as well, but that's the lowest he's finished this season. So there's, there's some consistency there in Sebastian Vettel, and his pace was excellent. Apparently, according to the guys, I find he was the he was the fastest guy on track in the second half of the race. Um, maybe that's down to Merck's lifting and coasting and saving the fuel because we all heard that on the radios. But yeah, phenomenal performance from Sebastian there, and thank God for Vettel and Massa putting on the entertainment for the race because there wasn't anything else anywhere else around Canada, which is kind of a shame, really. Um, also what was interesting about Canada for me Renault struggling the Renault powered cars of, of uh, Toro Rosso and Red Bull only one Renault powered car in the points and I believe that was Danil Kvyat in ninth. Um Ricardo did not score I think he came in 13th and then Carlos Sainz was, was 12th and Verstappen was just, just a weekend from hell for Max really he had, he had to take that um it was a 15 place. I know it's a 15 place grid penalty. Um, 10 for the engine change and five for the incidents in Monaco. And because he couldn't take the full penalty, they had to convert the amount of unused places into a penalty during the race as well. I mean, King, what do you make of this rule? Because it's a new rule for this year. And I think it's a bit ridiculous, quite frankly. Uh, I mean, everyone knew this was coming. Based off, based off of the end of last year, mm. the teams made these rules and. I don't know. They thought they could have made engines that were better prepared for this. I guess they were just terribly, terribly wrong. Yes, exactly. I mean, I don't think anybody predicted how, how unreliable Honda would be. Um, I mean, I mean, it, I felt I felt bad for Jensen in that regard, given that he had a failure in free practice free, had to go to his fifth engine, so had to take a penalty. But then, because he wasn't taking part in qualifying, he could not take the penalty. So he had to take a drive-through instead during the very first lap of the race. I mean, it's it's a double penalty, effectively. I don't think he'd have been taking the penalty even had he qualified, to be honest. I don't think he'd have been uh, that many places knocked off. Um, But yeah, these these problems are all what we expected last year, weren't they? When Mm. these engines first came in, we were expecting chaos. We were expecting engines to be blowing up the front and centre, and it never happened. Um, But yeah, it's this year where it's all kicking in. What I found funny about Verstappen's penalty is that when you go to a Formula 1 race and you look at the grid lineup, they have 25, 30 grid slots. Couldn't mm. they have just sent Verstappen right back to grid slot 30 and put him there and yep. started him alongside the medical car and just be done with it? <laughs> it's like, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Verstappen's got a 15 place grid penalty who he will be starting this race from Toronto. Um, <laughs> He'll be starting back at the hairpin before the back stretch. <laughs> <laughs> start starting back at the hairpin. Back at the hairpin. That, 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 that's, that's a good enough penalty. Yeah, he, he can go now. Uh, <laughs> some of a megaphone back there, or someone on the team radio. But uh, yeah, so that a bit of a weird rule there, and how it kicked in, and how it completely messed up the grid, really, with McLaren struggling and Vettel getting a penalty, and then Verstappen getting a penalty for 15 places, and getting the penalty during the race. It was all a bit weird. But King, what are we making of Renault's struggles here during during like, the engine power issues they've got right now? Because this this Canada's not the only power track left on the calendar. There's, there's quite a few more to come between now and the end of the season for Renault. And if this is what's going on in Canada, they're going to struggle for a good few races yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're, they're probably going to struggle in Austria because of the altitude, Monza because, you know, just sheer length, Spa also because of length. And it's... Renault's down. It doesn't seem like it's going to be fixed soon. It'll probably be ironed out eventually 
in two or three seasons. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, dear. But, yeah, I mean, I've already heard that Red, I think Red Bull pretty much all but confirmed they're going to use a fifth engine on Ricardo's car in Austria. So expect Ricardo to be starting at the back you know, during their home Grand Prix in Austria. And I would not expect too much progress, to be honest, given the nature of Austria as a real power track again there. Um, so, yeah, it just gets from bad to worse for Red Bull. There's only one guy in the points, and it's Kvyat again. Props to him for being the only Renault-powered car in the points. Um, Carlos yeah. Sainz is doing another decent recovery job in 12th place. They're beating, again, beating the sister team, which is quite impressive for Carlos. Um, another another job where he's beaten his teammate, Max Verstappen, who's stealing all the headlines. And, yeah, it's five, I think it's 5-2 head-to-head for Carlos Sainz against Max Verstappen in races now. But who's getting all the headlines? Of course, it's the Dutch boy. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's 17. Because he's 17. He's young. We need more guys like him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it should be noted, Renault have already hinted a bit that they're probably going to have a third team running their engines in the near future. But who? Uh, it, seem, it seems like it's going to be Lotus, because Lotus have recently announced that for the next five free practice one sessions that they're going to be running Joe and Palmer, which hmm. doesn't seem to make sense unless they were going to give him a race seat soon, and for them to give... For them to give Jolin a race seat, they'd have to drop a current driver. The rumors are that Renault is going to buy Lotus with the help of Total. Total sponsors Grosjean, so it doesn't seem like they're going to drop Grosjean, so that only leaves Maldonado to be dropped. The knee bone connected to the leg bone, the leg bone connected to the... Yeah, yeah, yeah there's like, it's like a whole, whole bunch of different ins and outs there, but yeah, I mean, the, the rumors are rumors are one thing, but yeah, Lotus going back to Renault after having a pretty solid start to the season so far on the Mercedes power, given their struggles last year, and Lotus actually were very good um, in Canada there with, uh, I think it was uh, Grosjean in 10th, um, despite the penalty, and Pastor in 7th, which I think is his best result... I think since 2013 for Pastor Maldonado. So, um, yeah, a great performance from Pastor. He was due that, to be fair, quite frankly, given how unlucky he's been this season. So I'm just glad Pastor finished a race, let alone score some decent points in seventh place as well. So uh, props to Pastor where that's concerned. Um, a relatively quiet weekend, and it was his teammate with the boneheaded move as uh, Grosjean hit the side of Will Stevens' car while trying to lap him on the blue flags. I don't know what was going on there, Lewis. <laughs> it's just bizarre. It was Roman Grosjean just looking for more space that he actually needed. It was, uh, it, it was one of those where I've heard it uh, said on, on a few occasions that, you know, the, the guy who's letting, you know, the bat mark, in other words, should let him through, get off the race and, like, get out of the way. But that wasn't necessary. They were on a long straight. Mm. Grosjean had the move done. And, yeah, he didn't need to squeeze him like that. It seems to be Grosjean's way of overtaking Batmark as he wants to try to squeeze them, where uh, Grosjean's probably instead thrown away his biggest chance of points in the near future because Lotus have struggled to this point. Um, they seem very much to be the, the sl- almost the slowest of the, the Mercedes teams because Force India mm. have produced an improvement from absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Um, not sure how Perez and Hulkenberg turn out to be so quick. Mm. Uh, Monaco and then again in Canada. So, uh yeah, Grosjean, it was just a brain fade from him, and I think he needs to rethink the way he laps cars, the way he overtakes cars, because I, I just don't think he gave Stevens anywhere near enough room, uh, as he should have done. It was it was signs of the old Grosjean, wasn't it? Yeah, looked, like, looked like he'd sort of um, cleaned up his act and put 2012 behind him, but it was another move where he just seemed totally unaware of where the other cars were, which was his problem back in 2012. 
Yeah, that was that was just a, it was a boneheaded thing to do from Grosjean. That was completely unnecessary to, 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 yeah, to, to squeeze I, Stevens out like that. Yeah, Brundle kind of mentioned it during the race. How it's like it, it was back to 2012, where it seemed like he just lost his peripheral vision, trying to get back on the racing line to take the optimal line through the last chicane, and just not realize that Will Stevens was there. Yeah, yeah, just a ridiculous situation, really, more than anything else, and. I can't, I can't wrap my head around this. It's crazy, but yeah. Will Stevens said it best on the radio with that brilliant radio transmission, <laughs> where he, where, with what he said about Grosjean. I think that pretty much summed it up better than any of us can. Yeah, and it was the most British thing I've ever heard. Like in it, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's like that. That is East End London to a T, right there from Will Stevens. Um, and that was the most you'll hear of a of a, of a man of team radio this season for sure. You will not hear another man of team radio this year like that more unlikely. The most you'll see on TV as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we play, we play the mana drinking game on our hangouts. Like, if you ever see a mana sighting, take a drink. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a more safer drinking game than the ones I, I tend to partake in. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned as well, another great great result from Force India this weekend. Have both cars in the points and Hulkenberg in eighth place as well, just ahead of Sergio Perez. And was, wait, was, yeah, Perez in ninth. Thing wasn't no. What was Perez again? King was he sixth? Wasn't he? Yeah. He was sixth, yeah, so Perez beat Hulkenberg again head to head, which is quite a nice result for him as well. But yeah, Force Indy ran nowhere this weekend with, with both cars in the points again. Like, it was the opening round all over again. Yeah, who needs a B spec car? <laughs> who needs a B spec <laughs> car, which has been delayed until Silverstone now? Because who needs it when all of a sudden it's like they found something? Did, did Smurmoff get, like, have, a, have a box of cash that got lost in the mail or something? I don't know. Uh, maybe they found something back there. But uh, yeah, overall for me. Kind of a mediocre Canadian Grand Prix. It was it was about as good a race as you probably could have gotten without, like I said, some major shenanigans, which is what tends to make for an elite race in Formula One these days. You got to have some form of shenanigans. Whether yeah, what I what I didn't get was after the race, so many people were saying, "When Canada's boring, you know, F1 is in trouble." It's like <laughs> it's not like any race has a divine right to be exciting. Exactly. It's like if you've forgotten two years ago, that was a boring race. Vettel took a cakewalk victory in Canada 2013. The most exciting thing about that race was Adrian Sittle deliberately holding up Hamilton under blue flags because he's still bitter yeah. about them not being friends anymore. <laughs> I mean. Uh the Canadian Grand Prix is my home race. It's only an hour's flight away from New York. Austin's mm. like four hours away. It's yeah. it's the first race in my time zone. Always watch it closely. And it's not as exciting as people always like tend to point out. It's either, you know, the last year's finish or or Jensen 2011. It's like the fans always turn out. So that's why it's always seen as, you know, mm. a great race. But... The product isn't always the best product out there. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought it'd be me that brought up 2011, but uh, yeah, I was beating to it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it, Canada. It seems to me that Canada tend. It's never been known as an overtaking fest, has it? It's not an overtaking track. You've got the one long straight, but yeah. it's, it's never really struck me as an overtaking track. What Canada's always struck me as is. It's exciting when people hit the wall and safety exactly. cars then scramble to, to mix the field up. And, yeah, what, what made this race boring is that nobody crashed. Which, again, is, is that what Formula 1 fans want? Do they want an overtaking fest? Do they want cars to hit the wall and spice things up? Because Monaco was the same. Monaco was dull as anything until Verstappen mm. tailgated Grosjean, and then we suddenly <laughs> got a bit of excitement. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's exactly the same. And, you know, 
you got to realize 2011 and 2014 were freak races. That is not yeah. the norm for Canada. 2014 last year was ridiculous, and that's only because both Mercs had problems. Severe problems. <laughs> like, Rosberg finished second and he was down 150 horsepower. What does that tell you about the state of the field? <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> um, and, and then Canada 2011, well, I don't even want to talk about that, quite frankly. Um, but 2014, that was a thunderstorm, simply put. Yeah. Uh, 2010 was a tyre race. That was that was a Bridgestone race where the the, the tyres spiced it up more than anyone expected, which gave people a sort of better view of that race than it probably actually was. Indeed. And then you go further back, go back to sort of oh seven oh eight. There were crashes again that spiced that up, like Hamilton hitting Kimi in the pit lane and, mm. and Kubica having that big accident. It was those that made the race as exciting as they were. It wasn't pure racing, if you know that dreaded phrase that people had to throw around. We want pure racing. Well. Canada's never really been about that. No. No. It can't, it can't, Let's be honest. The yeah. fans don't want pure racing. They want the team's worst nightmare. Unpredictability. Yeah. And that's just not going to happen in a sport as good as this one, quite frankly, where the team is just that good these days. And, you know, they're not going to make that many mistakes either. So for me, yeah, like I said, Canada was as good a race as it could have been without, like I said, major shenanigans. But before we move on to MotoGP real quick... Let's talk about McLaren, shall we? And uh, cover your ears, Lewis, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so to speak. But um, yeah, King, let's talk about this. Here. Another double DNF for McLaren. Like, like, it's like, it's like every step forward, they've taken two steps back. And if things seemed quite bright after Monaco, where Jensen Button scored four points for eight, and that was a, a very good result for McLaren, and they were delighted with that. And they've come to Canada, and they've they, they've been terrible. They were terrible in Canada. I mean, Button had mechanical issues all the way through the weekend. They couldn't complete the race distance. So did, so did Alonso. Alonso had a, had a bitch fit about it afterwards as well. I mean, McLaren are in dire straits, really, aren't they, at the moment? Yeah, I, I, I really can't point to the reason why this happened. Yeah, it's bizarre. It, McLaren have everything to be successful. They definitely have the money, because... Number one, they're being backfunded by, you know, Honda and also an entire oil-rich Arab Gulf country. I don't know why this is happening. Obviously, there was some breakdown somewhere that caused this engine program to just fail. Yeah, it's like Honda Honda have been down on power from the start, which has not been helpful. But then their reliability has also been terrible. And they've been trying to fix that ever since the season began more than anything else. And... Sotheby, you must have been trying to pull your hair out by the end of this weekend. Yeah, there's there's none of it left, unfortunately. What I found <laughs> hilarious was at the end of the weekend when the two cars broke down, um, and I think it was the Honda individual power unit Twitter accounts, um, <laughs> which tweeted that you know the problems were unrelated, an investigation is underway. And I was so tempted to reply to them saying, I could save you that investigation, the car is shite. <laughs> <laughs> investigation over. Um, but yeah, it's funny when you think of the haves and the have-nots in Formula 1. McLaren are among the haves in terms of money, but they have no seeming talent or logic at all um, to spend that money wisely and put it in the right areas. It, it is so frustrating. But um, yeah, we think of McLaren as a big team in Formula 1, but mm. the, the more and more you look at it, they haven't really been a top team consistently for a couple of decades now they or even a decade go out to sort of the mid-2000s when Kimi was challenging for the, that championship in 03 and then again in 05 since then they've maybe had one or two years where they've been championship challenges but that's always been followed by another year or two of just absolute shite again um, where Lewis takes the title in 08 and the 2009 car's a dog 
Um, 2010 was okay. 2011, they were in an absolute mess in testing and just about recovered it for the first race. Mm. 2012 had its problems, and since then, um, yeah, they've been all over the place. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to lay all the blame on the door of Honda now because Honda have made a bit of progress from Australia where it was plainly obvious that they were so cautious. They were so mm. worried about the thing blowing up that they were running four or five seconds off the pace, but they're not doing that now. And you have to look at the actual chassis that McLaren have got, the actual car that they've got. And at a place like Barcelona, they were still struggling to even make the point. So McLaren are in the, uh, as much as fault as Honda are for me in this one. Mm. You know, the McLaren car ain't good enough, nor is the Honda power unit. Which is funny, given that Ron Dennis was very adamant that the, the chassis in the car was great during the, the RF test, saying, like, oh, once we get the power unit sorted, we'll be flying out there, and no. Yeah, and, uh, and if, you ever, if you ever watch Sky F1 during the night, where they have sort of old interviews and stuff on a loop, one of those interviews they play is Ron Dennis at Suzuka last year, Ooh. where he's asked about the Honda power unit and how's it coming on. He said, I think he says something about, oh, the power unit's fantastic. It is, it is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Honestly, go back and find it. He is so, he speaks so highly of this Honda power unit that's in the works. I'm still waiting to see it. <laughs> but like I, I still remember the, when the first test came around and everyone immediately knew there were problems speculation automatically went to there was a fundamental problem with communication between the Japanese Honda engineers and the mainly British uh, chassis engineers <laughs> oh yeah ex exactly it's just it, it's, it's bizarre I mean I can't even wrap my head around all this properly myself when it comes to McLaren's issues and I, did, I, I thought they'd be down the bottom, but I didn't think it would be this bad, quite frankly. And there's no real sign to suggest that they're going to get better anytime soon. I mean, engine reliability is not a quick fix. Renault themselves, when they had their issues in China, said it was going to be six, six weeks before they could fix that. And Renault came out the other day and said that they might not have a performance upgrade for their engines until Abu Dhabi, quite frankly. That, that, yeah. um, and like I say, it's not as if you can throw the argument out that, well, at least when Honda get their act together, we know the McLaren have a fast car, because they plainly don't. So even when Honda are on a level, say, with Ferrari, McLaren is still going to be nowhere near the podium. They're going to be probably back end of the point and save that. Mm. Yeah, because you, know, you, know, you know what? The top six looks set in stone at the moment with yeah. you know, with, with, with Mercedes, Ferrari and Williams looking clearly the three best teams at the moment. It, Red Bull, if it's not a power track, should be fourth, quite frankly. Toro Rosso are, are, are pretty much on the same level as them. Lotus and Force India can get involved on their day. There's no room for McLaren at the inn right here. Like, at well, best, they'll be well, fighting you remember, for minor Trey, points. Was, there was a qualifying session, I think it was Barcelona, where we mm. almost had a Noah's Ark grid from start to finish. Oh, God, yeah. Had, where we had the Mercedes, the Ferraris, I think the Torosos got up on the third row. Yeah, five and six, We had yeah. the Red Bulls and the Williams in the top ten, and then 11th and 12th was the Lotuses, 13-14 was McLaren, then the next two were Sauber, then Force India, then Mana Marussia at the pack. And people wonder about why Formula One is so dull this year. I think it's because of the field spread and because Absolutely. there aren't there aren't enough cars that are closely matched enough to be racing wheel to wheel. Um, so many races you'll see where there are so many big gaps between cars. And I remember watching Monaco, where I think it was about ten laps in, where Hamilton was two and a half seconds clear of Rosberg, who was about three seconds clear of Vettel, who was about four seconds clear of the Red Bulls. So where's your racing going to come from when there's so such huge gaps between every car? You're not going to get any. 
Yeah, absolutely spot on. I think mean, that's absolutely right. I think yeah, that that's the biggest reason why this season's not been great. There's been not there's been very little wheel to wheel racing, mostly for the reason of unless there's a strategy clash of some kind. There's actually a distinct difference between teams, and that's a, and that's alarming. We need, to, we need to thank the greatest talent of Formula One since Senna uh, for reversing back into the path of the Williams. And <laughs> <laughs> oh my you god! I mean, you base striking and just like push back to McLaren. Like going into this year, I knew the McLaren chassis was going to be terrible, but I just assumed Honda was going to bring a good engine to the table because. McLaren had this, this dispute with with Red Bull over signing, you know, Adrian Newey, Adrian Newey's protege, Peter Pedroma, as the new head of aerodynamics, and this whole guarding leave oh, situation. Yeah, yeah. So I knew, I knew their chassis was going to be bad, but it's like Honda, though. <laughs> <laughs> Great, uh, yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right, though. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all. I think we all gave McLaren too much credit. I think more than anything else, and Honda for, for a couple of years now as well. Honda, uh, McLaren have always told us that you know we we've we've worked out why our car was so bad, and we've, we've learned the lessons, and we're going to put that into next year's car. Uh, well, all they seem to be showing us at the minute is that they're working out how to make the next car even worse than the previous one. <laughs> it's like they might as well put Mark Marquez out on a bike out there. <laughs> he could probably score some points. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Speaking of which, let's talk about MotoGP in Italy. Right. MotoGP in Italy, and my word, um, not much to really talk about MotoGP on this one, really. Um, there's a couple of key talking points, but let's be real here. Jorge Lorenzo is based God at the moment, and uh, it, it, I was really, really hoping Italy was going to be an amazing race, because Italy is my favourite track on the MotoGP calendar. It's an amazing track. It's got the most amazing fans. I mean, we saw... A Rossi fan with a fucking chainsaw <laughs> after the Grand Prix. And it was one of the most unique situations I've ever seen. And you know what was worse? Not only was he holding a chainsaw, but he smelt blood because he could see the BT Sport camera crews and he thought, I'm going to fuck your shit up right here. I'm going <laughs> to play this chainsaw right in front of your sound boom and it's going to mess up your entire check and flag show after the race. <laughs> it was hilarious. If you haven't seen it, Go find it. He is literally... He's, it's, it's basically like an Italian version of Jason Voorhees. Basically, he was just with a chainsaw instead of a machete, so to speak. Yeah, it, it doesn't take much to throw you and Thomas off his game either when he's presenting with the post race. You and Thomas, to those who don't know him in the motorsport mm. world, he's a middle-distance runner uh, for the United Kingdom who happens to like bikes um, and PT Sport have got him presenting the, uh, the, the BT Sport MotoGP version of the F1 Forum uh, or the Paddock live show that Sky did with Formula One. It's the, it's the post-race reaction, um, and he's pretty dreadful at it. He, he's, he's terrible. I, I, I've, got, I've gone out. Like, like, like how dreadful? Because over here we got Katie Abdo leading our Women's World Cup coverage, and she, I, she can't, for the love of God, pronounce Winnipeg to save her life. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, she, she, you've got the Sky Sports pundit over there doing your Women's World Cup coverage. Yes. Wow. Fox Fox is not giving us like good coverage. Oh, <laughs> it, it, it you could have had you could have had Jim White. Be thankful of that. <laughs> yeah, we, we we had Jim White doing our doing NFL draft coverage, King. Yes. <laughs> 
Like, that takes <laughs> some topping. <laughs> like, that, like uh, when it comes to the out-of-place presenter scale, that's quite high up the top. Like, like <laughs> Jim White's draft coverage was so fucking bad. It, it, it really was that bad. And, oh, jeez. And, uh, and, and you and Thomas's deal is to, seemingly, it's to portray him to speak a few words in the butcher. language of the Grand Prix that they're at. So this weekend we'll be hearing him come out with some Catalan, no doubt, over this weekend. Fucking hell. <laughs> like, back, like, I'm just gonna rant about Abdo for a second, but literally it's become such an open secret that the producers have been telling her, think Winnie the Pooh when you're trying to pronounce Winnipeg, that it's become a meme. Wow. Where it's just pictures of Katie Abdo with Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> if you can find one, King, put one in the Snapchat. I want to see this in person. <laughs> Quite frankly. Quite frankly. In, in the meantime, yeah, we're talking about it. Yeah, you and, like, I mean, BT Sports coverage is all over the place. Like, Abby is not a great anchor, in my opinion. No. This, 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 this sounds terrible for me as an aspiring broadcaster to bitch about people like this yeah. on my own Craig, broadcast. Craig Doyle, Craig Doyle is good. Uh, Doyle is good. Um, but Abby is dreadful. I remember listening to her for the first time last year when she was presenting the Indy 500. Oh BT God! Sport, and she was practically <laughs> orgasmic when she was trying to introduce the the, uh, the the race itself, and you know you could tell when someone's feigning excitement. Oh. Uh, she was oh. she was quite plainly doing that, and yeah, like you said, Craig Doyle's really good because he's presenting the other man TT this week, and mm. he's able to present excitement and the, that dreaded word banter. He's able to do that without it coming across as forced. Yeah, and he um, he genuinely loves his bikes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes across like that in the broadcast. And James Tozend is great, and he's the nicest guy on earth. Quite frankly, as I said before, because I've met him. James is Rebecca. James has met him before. Yeah, and, we know. can't speak badly about Tozend in case Bex is listening. Yeah, yeah, we, we we can't have that. Like we can't have that. And just, even if even if I could, I couldn't do it because Tozend's just too nice. I met him when I met him when I, when um. I was doing the um I was when I was visiting the MotoGP tonight set for their for their taping of their show and Tozen stayed back for like an hour to do autographs and just talk to fans. He's a really really nice guy. <laughs> He's almost too nice, quite frankly. Um, him, Gavin Emmett, cheeky chappy, lovely guy. Hodson, a bit nuts, but I kind of like him anyway. Even yeah. though he, he, he said that he, he said, well, the funny thing about Hodson, right, is that he said that. Marquez had lost confidence going into Le Mans weekend after he, until he then he smashed that pole time and, yeah. I the, and I took the piss out of him on Twitter for it and he actually ferreted my tweet which I thought was actually quite nice of him it was like that, that's his acknowledgement there yeah, quite yeah, frankly don't laugh at himself which is good <laughs> yeah which is, which is good and Hotton uh, Sons is a nice guy but oh, Keith Ewan's able to laugh at himself too but that's not a good thing that's a necessity because he fucks <laughs> up <after. laughs> exactly he's so bad so I'm like like Ewan is the most predictable commentator on Earth. One, he could not go more than 10 seconds if I mentioned Danny Kent. <laughs> he could not go more than... T like, every time there's a crash, he has to mention the back wheel and the front wheel and if there's a collision, the guy on the front wheel is going down. It's like, how many times have you got to say this? Because <laughs> the Moto2 race didn't happen. The guy in front stayed on and the guy in, well, the guy in front fell. The guy in the back stayed on. Um, which is hilarious. But you know, I've still got the sound clip on my phone of uh, Keith Ewan last year where any uh, fans of or anyone who's followed World Superbikes for a number of years knows that he was a big fan of Carl Fogarty back in the day. Oh God! Yeah. Uh, when Carl Fogarty was winning World Superbike races, and Valentino Rossi puts an overtake on, I think it was Andre Iannone at Aston last year, and uh, Keith Ewan's reply was, "As Fogarty, uh, Fogarty," and then realises he meant to say Valentino Rossi. <laughs> oh, good old Keith Ewan. He's always good for a laugh, even if he's pretty bad. 
Bring back Toby Moody. Bring back Toby Moody. Like, I, I, will, I will donate to a Kickstarter to make this happen if it comes down to it. Like, sod my Xbox. X Games at the minute. Oh, God. Like, the, the X Games win is MotoGP's loss, clearly. <laughs> and I've just seen the picture in a Skype yeah. chat that runs with the yeah, next to Winnie the Pooh. God damn it. Okay, you, you can kind of tell we've gone off on a tangent only for the reason that we don't really want to talk about the race, which was just kind of mediocre, really, more than anything else. Just... There is no stopping Jorge-based god Lorenzo at the moment, and he won by, I think, was it was like three and a half seconds in the end. It was much bigger than that. Lorenzo wound it down towards the end quite massively, and yeah, King, he's just too good at the moment right now, isn't he? Yeah, just way too good. I had hope in Ducati. I thought Ducati had the straight line me speed. Davi let me down. Davi let me down. <laughs> Yeah, it's like Dovi had a bike problem all race long. He has a, he was, I think it was a broken sprocket that caused a problem with Dovi's bike, and he was never really a factor after the halfway, and then he had a, he had a mechanical failure, which was pretty much the, the last nail in the coffin um, for his season hopes, really, more than anything else. I mean, he's, he's been consistent, consistently scoring like third and fourth places more than anything else, and the ref race was bad enough, and then that happened, and... Yeah, it gave Iannone quite the opportunity, though, because Iannone had a brilliant performance to come in second place. They're beating Valentino Rossi over the line as top Italian, which was a, I guess, not the surprise the Italians wanted, but I think they'll take it, Lewis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Valentino Rossi was the guy that I was looking to pre-weekend to try mm. and stop Lorenzo, but <laughs> he's, uh, he's quickly realising that you cannot qualify eighth and expect to win every time. Yeah. Um, especially because well, the reason that was working earlier in the season was because Lorenzo was struggling so mm. he was able to chase down Marquez in Argentina and um, the, the Ducatis and Lorenzo who obviously wasn't in his best form in Qatar but when Lorenzo's out front and in the form that he's in at the moment when he gets a second of a lead you're not bringing that back and by the time Valentino Rossi works his way to second place mm. um, as he did in Le Mans or third in Mugello Jorge's too far up the road to do anything about him yeah. Um, so then, yeah, he's yeah. gonna have to find a way to start qualifying, not so much on pole, but qualify close enough to Lorenzo that he could stay with him early in the race. Front Otherwise, Jorge's just gonna keep winning. He's got to get on the front two rows. Like, yeah. th row three is too far back, and you know the, the bikes in front of him are too good to, for Rossi to just pass off. And, and as and as long as you've got Ducatis on softer tires and Suzuki's on softer tires, that's gonna be harder and harder for him to do. Yeah, because Suzuki are only going to get better. Apparently, they've, they've bought engine upgrades for this race in Catalonia this weekend, so Suzuki yeah. might be a threat this weekend. Um, there might be one to look out for. Um, but yeah, Valentino Rossi just gave himself too much work to do in the end, more than anything else. And it was a solid third place, and he's he's not finished off the podium this season, which is an incredible achievement in its own right. Unfortunately, it doesn't help when when your teammate has won the last three <laughs> and is looking <laughs> practically invincible at the moment. Um, He's, he's, he's in a different league to everybody else at the moment, but yeah, props to Ianoni for a, a obviously a career high finish in second place, and the maniac had a brilliant weekend with um, qualifying his first career pole position. He was he basically towed off the back of uh, Lorenzo's bike for his yeah. qualifying lap, and it worked out beautifully in the end. Lorenzo was set to beat it, but then lost three tenths of a second 
on essentially the last corner because that's what Sector Four is. You know, OGP. But OGP, like Sector Four, is essentially the last corner, and that's it. I don't like know how he lost. Straight, yeah, yeah. I don't know how he lost that time, but he lost three temps on one corner. I was like, huh? <laughs> um, don't get me wrong, I was delighted for Ian Oni, um because he's one of my favourite guys to watch in this sport because he's just so damn captivating and crazy. <laughs> quite frankly, um, there is a reason they call him the maniac, and there's a reason Julian Ryder calls him Crazy Joe. That's put it that way um, but yeah great performance of me and Oni Valentino Rossi in third and boy what a Greek tragedy Mark Marquez is turning into this season my god um, he, 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 like it's like when Mark Marquez doesn't do well it sucks the life out of a Grand Prix <laughs> and like he is so utterly captivating and it's, it seems to starting to hit me now what we're missing with him up the front of the grid Lewis mm, yeah I mean even last year when he was winning he won the first 10 races of the season many of those were still thrilling races to watch mm. um, I mean Lamani fell to 10th at the start came through to win mm. um, Catalonia he was fighting all the way down to the last lap with Pedroza uh, and you know he was fighting all the way down to the last lap with Rossi and Qatar so even when he wins he still gives you enough excitement to make it a thrilling race mm. Lorenzo just doesn't do that Lorenzo is as good a front runner as you'll see uh, in motorcycle racing Marquez not necessarily he's more the guy that likes to fight for it and mm. what's, what's amazing with Honda this year is that they've taken their bike and their rider's greatest strength and take it out of play Mm. It's kind of it's kind of like telling Seth Rollins he can't do the curb stomp, although that did, <laughs> yeah, exactly. although, although of course that did happen. Um, <laughs> so I was telling, it's like telling Randy Orton he can't use the RKO, although that did happen too once. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. They've taken away the strength of the Honda under braking and acceleration because mm. um, the velocity of the engine just doesn't allow Marquez to brake and accelerate like he used to. And therein lies the Honda's strength and it's now gone so whereas Yamaha have improved their bike they've brought in seamless gearboxes and, and you know, it's enabled them to catch up in that area where the Honda was stronger Honda, Yamaha brought that in whilst maintaining the strength they had before where they were so good through corners and that's left Honda with so much catching up to do and whereas before they would have been perhaps you know, finishing still on the podium you now throw those Ducatis in there and, and Honda are suddenly as Matt Marquez found out at the weekend missing out on the top 10 in qualifying and then having to start 13th and he was having to ride on the absolute ragged edge just to stay in second place mm. um, and that was half second lap slower than Lorenzo could manage Yeah. Um, and as we saw he was riding so hard just to try and stay in second that he ended up decking it Exactly, and yeah, it, it was, it was like it was like seeing Bambi getting shot, seeing Marquez just lose his right. I was like, oh no, Slow Mark! Death. Oh, oh my Because yeah, nobody crashes like Marquez. Like, I happened in Masano last year as well, where Mark, when he goes down on the low side, he will hold it till the bitter end. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like lean angle, seventy-eight degrees. Like shit, <laughs> he, he, he refuses to go down until it absolutely is down. <laughs> I think that's all spurred on from that one testing moment he had oh, at Rio yeah. last year, where I think he got to sixty-seven degrees and saved it on his shoulder. And I think that's almost given Mark Marquez this deluded belief that oh, I can rescue this I can yeah. rescue this until my head hits the tarmac I'm still on this he is, he is the he's, he's the captain of that bike he goes down with that bike yeah, yeah it's like it's, it's Titanic and the windows have just caved in on the cabin where the captain's just standing there waiting for it to go down <laughs> like, it's like oh so this pilot wants to commit suicide great um, but yeah it's like, it's, it's, it's like it, was, it was like seeing Bambi getting shot out there because you know it's not Mark's fault we all know what Mark yeah. can do when that bike is working perfectly and 
that bike is severely flawed and apparently they're bringing new electronics to, to Catalonia this weekend to try and take some of the velocity out of that engine whether it will work remains to be seen um, yeah because it's not a because it's not a problem with the this is part of the problem with Honda having engines homologated which Ducati do not because they have mm. these concessions in MotoGP where they can develop their engine they can bring new engines in later mm. in the year Honda can't do that so this problem they've got they've got to deal with it to the end of the season yeah. and try and find a way around it some other way if anybody can save it it's Marquez but I wouldn't hold out much hope for his title chances this season I mean to be fair Jorge yeah, Lorenzo hey, was very generous towards him saying like oh he, he, he can still win the title we're told to go it's just like he, can't, he just can't drop again that's all yeah Marquez mm-hmm. will win races he'll win plenty of them following the season but in between those will probably come a few crashes um, because I think it is going to be win it or bin it for Honda this season. Think back to 2006 when Nicky Hayden won the championship mm. and Valentino Rossi was chasing him down and Valentino Rossi would often win maybe a couple of races on the pants and then the next race the Yamaha engine would blow up and undo yeah. all that kind of hard work. I think it's going to be that kind of season where Marquez might go on this roll towards the end of the season where he's chasing down the Yamahas but there'll come a moment where he'll crash and have to do it all again. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, hard times for the Honda camp and Mark Marquez. Must see Danny Pedrosa back in there looking as mediocre as he always does, unfortunately. Good. <laughs> poor Danny. Um, talk about Moto2 and Freewheel quick. Um, luckily, I think we... Is, is it safe to talk about Simone Corsi in here, guys? You reckon? Maybe? Yeah, so Fex isn't listening. She isn't listening. <laughs> Okay, yeah, yeah. So only course he's a dick, everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Basically, I don't know what he was doing with that. Like, sh- uh, like he I was know being Simone Corsi. This is a good. Yeah. This is a guy you nearly. When I went to Silverstone last year in the paddock, he nearly ran me over uh, <laughs> on his scooter, and without so much as a hand acknowledgement to say sorry, he just kept going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and treating treating journalists and team personnel as moving chicanes in the uh, paddock. <laughs> uh, he rides like that in the paddock as well as on the track. Mark Marquez once took him out in a practice session um, in a fast corner at Valencia, took him, absolutely sideswiped him during a practice session. I remember that. The mm-hmm. one person who didn't complain and say that, that was disgraceful riding was Simone Corsi. Like, Simone, that's for, for Simone, that's, that's a day at the dirt track. It's like, yeah, that's yeah. normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. But uh, I mean, one, one thing we mentioned before we go into Moto2 real quick was, oh, Mark Marquez's start. My God, that oh. deserves more credit. That was that was a Donington 93 moment oh. for MotoGP, right? Andre Inoni start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those guys that don't know or haven't listened to last week's Bike Live, which is a possibility, but if you haven't, how dare you? Go find it now. But yeah. essentially... Um, Ian O'Neill, his reaction time when the bike started moving and when the lights went out to three decimal places was, and I quote, 0.00. He got it absolutely spot on. It was literally a perfect start. It's like playing Mario Kart and you've got a boost start off the line. It's like, yes! Yeah. <laughs> it's that boost start you never quite get, but you've got to learn the timing exactly right. But for all intents and purposes, it was a jump start. You fluked yeah, it. It was, yeah. it was a jump start. Like, Dre, I told you, mm. I think, the day of of why the lights were still up here to illuminate while his bike moved away. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, and it to the naked eye, it looked like a jump start. To the na- like, I thought, oh, hang on, you know, he's jumped that start. That's the first thing I told you when I saw the start when we watched that race together, King. I was like, that's yeah. a jump. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, who gets the drive through? Carol Abraham. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, yeah, for all intents and purposes, it's a jump start. You cannot react 
the human body could not react to that in time. And hence why in sprinting, there is a one-tenth of a second reaction time limit. If you're within a tenth of a second, it's a jump start. Because yeah. they know a human being cannot jump that start. Because they know if you've reacted that quickly, you preemptively predicted the gun. Which is not... Me- that's not how it's meant to work. Yeah, <laughs> and that, this is the thing with MotoGP having this bullshit rule where it's about whether you gain an advantage. And it's not a part of... It's not a case of are you within a tenth of a second. It's... As long as you're stationary when the lights are on, you're okay. As soon as the lights start to change and you move, you're okay. Even if you completely guess it, or in Andreoni's case, you jump it but get lucky because the lights go out just as you jump the start, then you're okay. Um, and you know, you can you can even the rules as they're written mean you can even start stop, but as long as you are stationary and within your grid slot when the lights finally go out, it's not a jump. Oh, so, come on. <laughs> so theoretically, you could have, in Catania's weekend, you could have a guy park about two metres behind his grid slot, and he could just start creeping forward, creeping forward, creeping forward when the lights are on. But as long as he's stationary when they go out, it's not a jump, which is ridiculous. That's a load of bullshit, that is, right there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, Ian only guessed and got lucky. I want the man's lottery tickets next week. Seriously, I don't know how on earth he got that spot on. Well, yeah, I, I, I actually know exactly how he got it. He, he, he got fucking lucky, so to speak. <laughs> but um, At least it wasn't as bad as Jorge Lorenzo's jump start in Texas last year. Where, <laughs> uh, oh, he went about half an hour before the lights went out. <laughs> <laughs> well, about that start was that Lorenzo went, stopped... Went again, and then Marquez Tundi passed him by the end of lap one, which yeah, I thought was it, hilarious. It's the resignation of, oh, fuck it, I've jumped it anyway, I might as well just go. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you're going to go, you got to go. You can't, you can't like, realise, you just have to commit. You have yeah, to commit. You know, yeah. <laughs> what I love about that is that he took he took his drive through before it was even officially announced. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. I know what's coming here. <laughs> Oh dear, but yeah, a lot of people on, on Ask accused me of saying he did it on purpose, and I'm like, guys, it's okay if he got it wrong, like, Jesus. If he jumped the start by long enough that he could take a penalty and still lead the race, then maybe. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, essentially, yeah. Talking about MOT real quick, it was Tito Rabat that got the win. Uh, yeah, like yeah, it was a it was a vintage Rabat performance. Just lead from the front, set the same lap time twenty five times over, and make sure the guy behind you doesn't stick his front nose in where it's not needed or wanted. And that's pretty much what happened because Rabat took a pretty comfortable win in the end from Johan Zarco, who bless him kept it closer, but probably timed his attack a little bit too late. Um, in the end, he was getting closer and closer and closer, but just ran out of time at the end. Zarco coming in second, and Dominique Agata in third. Nice to see him back up the front again after it's been a disastrous start to the season yeah like Agatha was like the unsung hero of 2014 last year after finally getting his first win um, as well uh, the Saxon ring last year and then you know being he, he was the guy in Motor that was just getting better and better year to year <laughs> and then this year switching to Calais was, was terrible until this race so props to Agatha for you know finally clawing a decent result out of the bag in third ahead of Sam Lowe's in fourth who was not best pleased <laughs> with Simone Corsi after the race saying he was basically a bit stupid uh, which is probably the nicest anything anyone's ever been about Simone Corsi quite frankly um, what's, what's funny about Agatha and, and Lowe's as well is that Agatha's obviously suffering because everyone switched from whatever they were on last year to be on a Calyx because that's yeah. the best bike supposedly and then you've got to think that after Texas this year and after Qatar where he put on pole with Sam Lowe's everyone's thinking any chance of getting a speed up anytime soon? Because <laughs> <laughs> sudden speed up without challenging Calyx. And yeah. there are only two suitors in the field, and they're both just absolutely shite rookies that are on them. There's Zaidi, yeah. the Malaysian, 
And I think the other one is Florian Alt, who's, who's a Moto2 rookie, who own suitors. Yeah, just, just terrible. And speed up all, all of a sudden, they're competitive again, and they're a, a real looking like viable alternative all of a sudden with Sam Lowe's having the breakout season he's having. And you can catch more Sam Lowe's chili eating on Bike Live tomorrow at Down Downforce Radio at 8 o'clock. Um, check that out. That's totally not a shameless plug. Hi, Max, if you're listening. Hope you didn't like us talking about Simone Corsi too much. And what's what's funny as well is that Suter are being beaten in the constructors a minute by Tech Three, oh, uh, who have their own bikes, and Tech Three basically haven't developed their bike for a good year, two years, maybe three years. Yeah. And, and there was a great quote from Herbe Poncheral, who runs the, the the whole Tech Three operation. He runs the Moto Two team and the Moto GP mm. team. I'll just try and find it where he wasn't exactly complimentary of their two riders, Marcel Schrotter and Ricky Carduce. Oh yes, their yeah. two riders. Neither of them got in the points um, at Mugello, and basically Herbe Poncheral just threw them both under the bus <laughs> after the race, saying how badly they were. I'll, I'll just get the uh, the quote in front of me because he basically said that. You know, we need decent riders on their bikes. And he's basically saying that the riders we've got at the moment um, aren't good enough. Yeah, I'll read it. He says, Moto2 is a tough class, and there is no room for people who aren't top riders. Oh, God. Because <laughs> his two riders have just finished 16th and 17th. <laughs> Marcel Schrotter is not a terrible rider by any stretch. He was in the top 10 semi-often on that same bike last year. And Ricky Carduce... He had the one good race in Masado before he binned it. <laughs> and yeah, like Tech 3, it's not entirely the rider's fault that their bike has had pretty much zero development for the last two years. Um, but hey, at least not Sandro Cortese. Right, so moving on to Moto 3 real quick. It was Miguel Oliveira that got his very first um, Moto 3 win, finally, after all the backing I've given him on Bike Live this season. Finally, Miguel Oliveira's speed came through. Um, and Obviously, not just that, the first ever win for a Portuguese rider in MotoGP history. Um, he was delighted with himself. He was he was in tears after winning in, in, in the paddock afterwards. He, he looked like he just couldn't believe what had happened to the poor fella. Um, narrowly pipping Danny Kent um, in second place, who just continues to be the perennial clockwork, um, consistent fr- um, guy in Moto3. It's like no one's got a consistent answer for him, because Romano Fernati, who won the last race, was in third behind him. Who narrowly pipped out? Who finished in fourth on the photo? Suddenly, I've forgotten. Uh, Peko Banyaya was it? The yes, Benzo? yep, Peko. Yep, there was Peko. Yep, spot on. Nice one. Um, yeah, it was Francesco Banyaya who's had another strong Mahindra performance in fourth there as well. Um, Mahindra doesn't look, doesn't look like they're anywhere near where they need to be this year. And that was also KTM's first year of the first so any second within the season for KTM. They've actually won two on the bounce now after being smacked around by Honda in the early goings of the season. So. Because like KTM might be getting a foothold back again in the uh, Moto3. Yeah, they, 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 they've had a bad season. It took the power of Forza Fanati to finally end uh, <laughs> Honda's, Honda's winning streak at the start of the season uh, with Romano's win at Le Mans. And yeah, well, it's just amazing the way it's gone this season with Danny Kemp, where basically he is the marked man. And think back to Jerez qualifying, where every time Danny Kemp came out of his garage, Romano Fanati on cue <laughs> came out of his garage at the same time and followed him around the track to try and get us to slipstream from him and uh, yeah Danny Kenny what, that was what I was expecting to happen in Magello. I was expecting everyone just to latch onto him but he managed to find a clear spot on the track on his own and mm. put about a second into them in qualifying um, and if it was anywhere other than Magello where you cannot escape uh, because of the slipstream I think we might have seen another Danny Kent win by eight or nine seconds because I think he was that much better than everybody else. It was just that yeah. Mugello is a place where you can't escape. 
No, it's just it's just too big a track. It's just the straights are too long. It, they're too consistent, and it, it's impossible to do. It's not like America, which is quite technical in that regard. Yeah. Um, and and you know where he broke out in Argentina, where it's again it's very technical as a track. There's a lot of undulation. There's a lot of consistent flowing corners where you can break out on advantage if you are that fast, which is what Kent did in those two rounds. So, yeah. Um, Props to that again. You know, again, nobody's got a consistent answer for him right now. I think it's something like I think, I think it's a forty-six point championship lead at the moment. And the um, other guy, the other guys have all realised now that if they start squabbling amongst themselves and fighting with each other, that he is going to go away and they're not going to catch him. So they've all sort of this almost like that executive decision where, right, we're not going. If Danny Kent's in front, we're not going to fight each other until he's behind us. <laughs> exactly. It's like <laughs> it's like it's like somebody take one for the team and pass Danny Kent for yeah. us, please. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what's becoming. It's also kind of a that Quattararo's dropped off the face of the earth the last couple of rounds as well after a very impressive start and he almost had his first win in Jaref and all of a sudden ever since he struggled crashing at Le Mans and then crashing again at Mugello the poor fella so he'll, well, be, he'll be back this weekend I think because it's another Spanish track Catalan, oh yeah so I reckon, oh, yeah. I reckon I, obviously I'm not going to go for any predictions because that's another show that we do <clears> uh, but I think he's going to be somewhere near the sharp end again but yeah, if you haven't seen it already, go find it. It's a great race, as always. Mugello is the king of Moto3 races. You are guaranteed a great race at Mugello in Moto3. So if you haven't seen it already, check that one out. Um, yeah, moving on from MotoGP, we'll talk a little bit of IndyCar real quick. Maybe a little bit of Le Mans and wrap this show up. So, talking about... IndyCar, Mr. King, and we missed quite a thrilling duel in Detroit, didn't we? Oh, well, yeah, the first rain. I mean, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I already went straight to rain. The rain. first, the first race, of the, race of the duel in Detroit, that was obviously heavily rain-affected. Yeah, heavily and we rain ended affected. Up yeah, back, and, back and forth the whole way through. We had multiple cautions for... Um, a lot of incidents, I think it was... Who, who binned it in the wall? Was it Gonzalez that did it once? Charlie Kimball did it once after coming out on the dry tyres? Um, yeah. And he hit the wall. That caused a full course yellow. And Takuma Sato was getting a bit gamey out there for his own good. Why? Because Takuma Sato. Not now, Sato! Um, because <laughs> kind of a thing. Um, I couldn't numb, so I'm going to have to get that one in there. <laughs> but uh, what I loved about that first race was Marco Andretti just showing sheer grapefruits of steel. <laughs> driving in the wet conditions on on, on dry tires, just trying to extend that lead as much as he could. It was just, it's like his dad, Michael, was, was being his, his his race manager, and he just refused to listen to him, which was just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, I can go on, and it's like, Michael was like, dude, pit now, or you're going to run out of fuel, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he finally had to stop, but it it, it was... The rain came down heavier about halfway through. Um, they, there was no chance of them restarting it because it, because it was a thunderstorm hanging over Detroit, basically. And due to almost sheer dumb luck and convenience, just like James Hinchcliffe did in New Orleans, it was Carlos Munoz who got his very first IndyCar victory. Um, who was in second again, King? It Was it... Oh, I, I can't remember. I want to say it was Marco, but I'm 100% sure it wasn't Marco. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Marco, actually. Hang on, I'm going to bring up race control. See, we're a real organized bunch on this show. <laughs> this race was a while back. It, it, it was, yeah. It, it, it was, was Marco. It, it was, it was Marco. It was, this race was, 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 what, three weeks ago now, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> three weeks ago, um, 
and you've kind of forgotten since then. I, I, apologies, guys, uh, for that one. It, it was Carlos Munoz. Race was called off the 47 laps. I just found it here. Munoz taking the win over Marco Andretti in second, and Simon Pagano finally getting a bit of good luck in an IndyCar race this season after King's uh, Indy 500 prediction went up the swanee, uh, so oh, to speak, yeah. um, <laughs> with, with Pagano finishing in third ahead of Will Power, Scott Dixon, Helio Castroneves, and... Jack Hawksworth in seventh? <laughs> yeah, okay. Hawksworth was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, um, also, shout out to Tony Kanan's uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> Taylor yes. Swift livery inducing number 10, which sadly only lasted. I think it was uh, 33 laps. So he finished 15 laps down because they did fix the car and get it back out there. But he took a nasty shunt in the early goings uh, with um, who was it? Now it was a chart. Not Ray Hall. It was it was Graham Ray Hall was one of them. I think it was James Jakes and Stefano Coletti was the other one. I think they all had a big Barney into turn one and poor Canaan got collected and we couldn't see any more of the Taylor Swift comments. Be very sad indeed, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, yeah, just for the rest of the crew, real quick. Paul Power in fourth, Scott Dixon fifth, Helio Castro Nevis, the Fonz in sixth, New uh, Hawksworth in seventh, Juice ahead of Joseph Newgarden, Luca Felipe in ninth. Good result for him and Monty in tenth ahead of Takuma Sato, James Jakes, and Run Hunter Ray. Um, moving on to race two, King, and quite frankly, this was better than it had it, it had any right being given there were six cautions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the way we got those cautions just made the race even more exciting. Exactly, it, it was the show that. That we normally hope to see in Detroit. It was a cracker, and I've actually re. I think I think I've re rewatched re- re- it the other day because IndyCar are now putting all races on YouTube, which is fantastic. Well done, IndyCar. Little golf clap round of applause to you guys. You guys rock. Uh, thank you for that. I can just get some popcorn and a drink and just watch it on my Xbox, which is fantastic. Love you for that, IndyCar. More of that. And if they did my tweet when I mentioned them, yay. Um, quite frankly, it was quite nice of them. But yeah, this race was better than it had any right being. And actually, I rewatched it and I actually upped my rating from a 7 to an 8. I actually really enjoyed this race on the second watch, uh, which is it's just shocking. I said, given there were six cautions, it was better than it had any right being. We had carnage. We had Munoz, who had the um, the race one win, conk out after like five laps, which was unfortunate. Gonzalez binned it as well, as did Newgarden. And then King, Charlie Kimball hit Scott Dixon. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he offed his own teammate into the wall. <laughs> if, if this was Formula One, social media would go into meltdown, quite frankly, given that Charlie Kimball took out his own teammate in Scott Dixon. Just, just, he, he just didn't see him, did he, King? <laughs> no, no. Like, if, like, to people who don't watch IndyCar, think if Nico Rosberg ran Lewis Hamilton straight into a wall. <laughs> In, the internet would die. <laughs> it would not survive if something like that happened. But yeah, Charlie Kimball, don't know what he was thinking on that one. Um, just did not see where Scott Dixon's car was. How could he miss it? It's bright red for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah. Missed, missed him, but it's straight in the wall. Um, which was love it was that love that was lap fifty eight out of seventy. And then six laps later, after after the caution, they got going again. The same lap they got going again. Tristian, I think it was Tristan Vortier tried an ambitious move round turn two on Will Power. He clipped Power, he spun the car, and then he collected Helio Castro Nevis, his teammate, afterwards in spectacular fashion. Um, poor Will Power just could not catch a break on that one. Um, 
a firm but fair move, I think, by Vortier. A little bit of contact there. And Pitbull yeah, I mean, just lost it. <laughs> he downed the Death Star in a single blow. <laughs> <laughs> From now we will call him Christian Luke Skywalker Vautier. Um, after, yeah, he just he went right and he tapped the side of power. Power spun and then collected Helio and then both of them were out of the race. And, and given the running joke, and suddenly you might get someone, but basically Team Penske are the really, really good team in IndyCar. <laughs> and, every, and everybody wants to see them lose, basically. Yeah, yeah they're, they're the dominant team. They wear all black. They're automatically the evil empire. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, it, is the, it is the all-star team of willpower, reigning series champion, Juan Pablo Montoya, reigning Indy 500 champion, and General Prick, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Helio Castanevis, who's kind of like the nice one, really, because everybody loves Helio, because he's such a cool guy. He's like, we, we call him the Fonz <laughs> of IndyCar, because that's exactly what he is. He dancing, he's dancing with the stars, he's, he's the likable one. And even though, to be fair, I like Pajado too, but he's like the outcast of this one, really, more than anything else. Um, yeah, because he's the one in blue, not black. <laughs> exactly. He's not the evil one. He's just the French one, as we like to call him <laughs> instead, basically. And uh, poor Pagano finished in 14th as well. He was one of the unlucky ones that just barely made it over the line because of, cause of fuel issue, so to speak. But yeah, 48 took out the Death Star in one fell swoop to, to glorious and rapturous cheers when we were watching this race on YouTube. And we were watching this on stream with me, with me King and a bunch of other mates of mine as well. We were watching it and it was just absolutely glorious seeing Power and Castro Nevis collide. Like, oh, yes! Down goes half a Penske in, 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 one, big, in one big blow. And then Pajado and Montoya ran out of fuel over the line. So Montoya finished in 10th. Um, Simon Pagano in 14th so not a good race too for Penske at all but up the front King it was Sebastian Borde that was in the right place at the right time and got the win yep Borde showing the shades of his champ car days and got the victory yep and, and King was delighted because he's a huge Borde fan he's his favourite open wheel racer ever <laughs> so for Borde to get the win he was absolutely delighted in, in, right ahead in second place of not now Sato in second who held on um, again, he had a few issues to all right at the end as well, but he held, he was able to hold on for second. And in some, I guess, poetic justice for Graham Rahal, who was taken out in the first race, he finished in third, he, um, in, in, uh, in third place there in, um, for Graham Rahal. Tristan Vortier in fourth, a f- superb result for Tristan there in fourth place, ahead of Marco Andretti. Another good weekend for him in there in third and fifth, second and fifth respectively. And the internet's favourite, Connor Daly, in sixth place. And trust me, the Skype call we had to be in there, you Lucy had to be there. We were all so happy for Connor <laughs> Daly, it was ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, Daly the rookie against all odds. Before, I think, the, rest- the restart before the last restart, so mm. it was like 12 laps. He was in dead last. He was in 24th place. In about mm. a dozen laps, he overtook most of the field and finished in sixth. What a warrior. <laughs> Connor Daly is the fucking man. Okay? And if I'm gonna, we love Connor Daly on this show. We love him on this show. We love him on every show. We love him on Twitter. He has a yeah. huge internet following. He's one of the, the funniest and just most charismatic, likable guys in all of motorsport. And he he's worked so hard to get this indie opportunity. And he's killing it right now. Which I'm just delighted <laughs> for Connor more than anything else. He's, he's, he's a top, top guy. Um, and yeah, we, he's, he's become like official... Official mascot of the Motorsport 101 podcast <laughs> alongside James Hinchcliffe. Um, so, way to go, Connor. If he was leading the race, he led 12 laps of the Grand Prix. Um, if we, we were begging for it to rain at one point because it 
it was a drying out track. He was on wet tyres. He just kept track position and just kept the lead. And we were just praying for it to rain again. Because if it was rain, Daly would have had a real shot at the win. And he was even sent to the back for blocking. Just a complete bullshit penalty. He was he, he was demoted to the back of the field for blocking. And then he still came through the finishing set. Quite a is my goddamn hero, everybody. Um, are, are, are we going to mention the person who he got I charged would. with blocking? <laughs> well, well, I was going to say this, Dre. If I'm thinking the right person, where's your shout-out for Sage Karat? <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd mention this. <laughs> yes. The, 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 I'm, I'm going to explain it because other people were asking me about it. It's like, so Dre, what happens between you and Sage Karat? Karam. Hence why the episode of this uh, the episode of this podcast this will be titled Sage Karam is my bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you dare me to make that my episode title? <laughs> Ten retweets no. and it'll happen. <laughs> but the story goes is that Sage Karam was an idiot in the second half of this race. He took out two guys, plowed into the back of somebody, went unpunished, quite frankly, which was completely ridiculous. Sage Drove into the back of two guys, got his braking completely wrong, and then I called him out for this on Twitter, saying basically, Sage, you calling out other drivers when you took three cars out of the race yourself is hilarious. And then he actually responded to said tweets. <laughs> he was very sharp. He must have been on his phone, he must have seen his mention, he thought, fuck it, I've had enough, I'm talking about a Harrison bugger. <laughs> it just goes... <laughs> Well, wouldn't there been a thing if Corner Day didn't run me didn't run me off the road? And I'm like, you and I both know that's bullshit. Basically, I didn't quite say that. I said worse than I heard that. I said actually, I softened on him a little bit because he was honest enough to to basically say that yeah, that the, I, I agreed with him that the officials were terrible during the race because. You know, there was some terrible blocking calls in there. There was some silly rules and comment on Connor Daly. And then he deleted his tweet afterwards. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, one of the big IndyCar bloggers that I'm friends with mentioned that he deleted that tweet. <laughs> Told yeah. Dre that he did. And I was a, like, an admission of defeat, essentially. <laughs> and, and, and as I said at the time on Twitter, for anyone who knows the knows you and I, Dre, and, and our mm. co-host on Bite Live, Sage Karam needs to take some tips from Rebecca James of how to win an argument with you. <laughs> Ex- yeah, like Rebecca, like Bex is my kryptonite for some reason. Like she's the only person that can tame me in an argument these days. But yeah, but, Sage but no, Karam, calling out calling out racing drivers on Twitter never ends well. I no. read my experience with Johnny Tocotto Jr. It only ends well for me. (laughs) It's like I call out Luis Razia and he thinks we're bros. (laughs) (laughs) That is the most Ryan King thing ever. (laughs) You're too nice, King. That's your problem. You are too nice. I am not. I, I I don't have this luxury, quite frankly. And yeah, Sage actually responded, then deleted his tweet ten minutes later as a mission of victory. And yeah, that was the funniest moment. One of the funniest moments I've ever had on Twitter was Sage Karam de- deleting his tweet <laughs> in, res- in response to me in glorious fashion. So, Sage, if you're listening... <laughs> the screenshot of that tweet oh will God. live on. <laughs> uh, I mean... Just just to, to give some credit to Sage, he w- d- was having a frustrating weekend because he yeah. had pole for that race, mm. but later in the session, it ended up being a torrential downpour. IndyCar, IndyCar called the session and basically said the starting, the grid would be lined up in in championship points order. 
Mm-hmm, exactly. That, that, that's the go-to IndyCar rule. If you can't qualify, just line them up in title order and see what happens. And that's essentially what happened. And Sage was on track for pole until that point. So I feel a little bit bad for Sage in that regard, but... <laughs> it, it doesn't give you the right to treat everyone like shit. Thank you very much. You diss my, coy, you, you diss my boy Connor Daly and you deal with me, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, and the rage of the internet, quite frankly. But uh, yeah, if you haven't already, check out Race 2 on YouTube. It is brilliant. It's definitely worth a watch. Um, it's, also, it's on the IndyCar official YouTube channel. They're putting all the races up there for free this season. So well done, IndyCar, like I said, in that regards. Talking about Texas real quick as well, it sucked. Um, there's, 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 avoid that one. It was Texas. Texas is not a very good oval, people. And just just thought I'd get that out there in advance. It was the fastest Texas 600 ever, which I guess is a plus because there was a lack of cautions. Um, but yeah, Scott Dixon got the win in that one ahead of his Chip Ganassi teammate Tony Kanaan in second, Helio Castro Nevis in third ahead of Monty, Andretti, Munoz in sixth, then the Kimball, Briscoe, Jakes, and Chavez rounding off the top. 10 in that one. And spoiler alert, Dixon won by half a lap. Yeah, not really worth watching, folks. I'm just saying. It's not worth it. Nice livery on the car, at least. Um, (laughs) But the the Energizer thing going on there. We've got the Jurassic Park livery for this week's race in Toronto, which is going to be fantastic. I've seen it. It looks brilliant. (laughs) So, I'm the livery endorser. Scott Dixon now leads the IndyCar livery power rankings list. Um, Just ahead of Taylor Swift. Uh, fortunately um, there is still time for things to change though um, the Hinchcliffe number 5 golden black is still in third <laughs> um, just, just talk Le Mans real quick was already kind of running over time a little bit but um, just talking about Indy, um, Le Mans this weekend uh, King who do you reckon wins in Le Mans this weekend uh, I don't know I'm always extremely biased when it comes to Le Mans because I'm a massive Audi fan boy. <laughs> uh, understandable understandable but, uh, yeah, so you're just going to say Audi, aren't you? Um, yes. <laughs> um, I think Porsche, personally. Sonami, got a quick guess in there? Uh, well, I probably should say Toyota then, shouldn't I? I'm definitely not going to say this, uh, I'll tell you that. <laughs> fucking hipster. <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyone says, anyone says Nissan gets shot, uh, quite frankly. Um, check that out as well, obviously, this weekend. It's going to be great, more than likely. But we probably won't watch anything because we can't be asked yeah. to sit down. And I mean, it, it should be noted that Corvette Racing has officially withdrawn the number 63 Corvette from 24 hours due uh, to the chassis being unsalvageable after Jan, Jan Magnussen's incident. So there's only going to be one Corvette in the race. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> I've got a tweet mask in my inbox from, the, from Late Breakers, the Twitter account. And it, said, it tweets saying, Porsche 123 on the grid at Le Mans. This sort of dominance really needs to stop before it ruins the sport. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. So, props to Lady Breakers on that one. Check that one out as well. And, uh, yeah, before we go, King, plug yourself as always real quick. Yeah, if you, if you want to see more of my content, go on formulae.nyc. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Eric King. Exactly, so you can do that. 
we, you, me and Lewis, you, you know where to find us. If you're listening to this, you probably already know. You can find us on Downforce Radio and various other shows, as well as obviously our own, our own baby bike live every Friday night on Downforce Radio live. Um, we'll be talking about oh god, a whole heap of stuff next week, this this week, this this weekend. Well, probably today by the time you're listening today, yeah. to this tonight, more than likely, we'll be talking about World Superbikes in Portimao. We'll be previewing MotoGP in Catalonia. We'll be talking about BSB in Sanitizen this weekend as well. Week, mm-hmm. uh, Speedway World Cup final, all that shit. Yeah, so yeah, it's an absolutely stacked edition of Bike Live this Friday. So check that out. Well, probably today, actually. My bad. <laughs> Eight o'clock tonight, yeah. more than likely. We're gonna go, on loud, put... go and download that show that we did the other night. <laughs> <laughs> more than likely by the time this is this, yeah. Just find that show. It's on It's on Spreaker. For some reason, it's on, it's on the Jake Santon's name, which is kind of annoying, really, but still, it works, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, it technically is the like, it's actually it's actually twenty to one in the morning as we record this. So my mum's probably going to hate me for this for recording this so late, more than likely. But a massive thank you as always to Ryan King, to Lewis Sutherby for for coming on. It was it was a tremendous show, Pleasure. and uh, uh, and uh, yeah. Um, if you're listening already, feel free to download and subscribe on iTunes. We'll be back in two weeks' time talking about Le Mans, talking about Formula One. Where is it going to be next week? In Austria? Yeah, MotoGP in Catalonia, all that good stuff. Until next time, I've been Andre Harrison, he's been Lewis Sutherby, and he's been Ryan King. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara.